drive a present pursuit of entertainment, education, and some adjective to be named later. The Home Star Army proudly presents Trek West 5, a conglomerate podcast of science fiction, politics, humor, and pretty much whatever else we want to talk about. Trek West 5 is brought to you in part by RocketWebDesign.com, custom web design at template website prices. Designs by Dee.blogspot.com, your online home for all your digital scrapbooking needs. Need a home along the Wasatch Front? Contact Lisa DeBagere with Kirkham and Friends Real Estate. No one will work harder for your home. And thehomestarmy.com, blogging to the world since 2004. Your hosts for Trek West 5 are Joey and Peter. Good evening and welcome to Podcast 116. I am Peter. And I'm Joey. I have no internet tonight, so I'm not feeling myself. <laughs> you know, I did offer. We could have gone to the office, but you just completely rejected that I didn't idea. Didn't hear that offer. Well, no, but uh, I. Oh, well, we have a caller. <laughs> okay. You know, that's the second time this week you have failed to keep to your own motto: the podcast first and always. Well, it was actually one of our listeners calling in. Oh, oh, okay. I don't believe you. It was. I uh... heard you talking about the soccer game. <laughs> uh yeah uh well my whole team listens to the podcast i don't buy that <laughs> yeah they don't show up to the game but they religiously download this podcast <laughs> and i think i'm actually gonna get to play in this week's game so i'm i'm happier good yeah all right. Uh, well, um... well, as the universe's balance insists, because you're happy, I'm unhappy. <laughs> I thought we would start out as long as you don't have anything to begin I've with. I've got nothing. We had a couple of listener emails uh, that I thought we could address first. Okay. To start off with. I'm going to start off with uh, listener Sai. His was really short, but I wanted to respond to him. Okay. I think he just sent it in as like an email to you and I, but I wanted to respond. Okay. Uh, hey guys, just wanted to let you know that you were all in our thoughts last Sunday on what must oh. have been a very strange and emotional day for your country. Best wishes, Cy. Uh, now, first of all, let me just say thank you. That's very nice of you yeah. to, to say that. that um, um, very thoughtful for someone to take the time. Albeit, you know, a, a short email, but still, the thought is there. Absolutely, yeah. Very, very nice. Um, but I can't say that I agree with this. Mm. It wasn't an emotional day for you? No, not at all. Now, don't get me wrong, I was just as distraught and gobsmacked uh, on September 11th, 2001, as everyone else. I was. I was sitting there glued to my TV trying to decide if I should actually go to work that day <laughs> or if I should just stay at home and watch what was unfolding around us. Okay. Um, and, uh, you know, it was it was a big deal for a couple of years. Yeah. For me, I thought, okay, yeah, that's, all right, intense. Definitely took our country down a weird path. But ten years later... I, I don't know if this makes me a jerk, but I don't care anymore. Hmm. It doesn't mean that I that the the events that happened are any less meaningful. 
It's just I don't need a constant reminder of it. And Sunday, I was so ecstatic. I got up at 7.30. <laughs> For the pregame shows? Yes. I got up at 7.30 to make sure that I was showered, shaved, and like just everything was ready to go by like 9 o'clock. And I, I turned on... Uh, I, I the uh, We have a program called Music and the Spoken Word. It's done by the Mormon Tabernacle Choir yep. every uh, Sunday morning. I usually try and listen to that because I like the Motab Choir. They're really good. And it's nice to be able to listen to something soft and easy going on a Sabbath morning. Sure. Yeah. Uh, and so they had done a little tribute. They had Tom Brokaw on doing uh, the spoken word part of it. And then, of course, the choir was singing. And, you know, it was sort of a remembrance deal about that. And I thought, oh, eh, okay. Yeah, I guess that was nice. Sure. Sure. That's fine. Gotcha. And there were a few other uh, networks that are... Well, every other network was doing something. Yes. So by the time 10 o'clock rolls around, which is the pregame shows for uh, I was watching Fox, the number of times... By the way, I should say the pregame in this case is NFL. Yes, the National Football League, uh, American football. Not soccer. Yes. Um, it uh, They mentioned it so many ridiculous times, and they played so many different commercials about it, that by the time the the first game had started, that that video of the children singing, like uh-huh. walking around New York, had played. I would say probably about five times. I had seen it, and I thought, "Oh my gosh, <laughs> I am done listening to all of this." Yes, September eleventh was terrible, but I I guess I was so insulated and far removed from the event. That it does not affect me in the way that I'm certain it affects people in New York City. Sure. Or D.C. Or or Philadelphia. Yeah. I, I'm, I'm confident of that. But still, it seemed like it just went on and on and on the rest of the evening. So I go to church. I come home. Albeit, I came home a little early from church. I, I'm willing to admit that. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, <laughs> and then they, they played through the afternoon game they played the the sunday night game and it was just over and over and over again that i just thought come on really this much can we not yes remember but do we have to have these stirring renditions that are supposed to inflame our hearts to emotional something i felt that was a little too much okay i think Yes, okay, remember, it's sad. Let's move on with the rest of our lives, though. I understand. Uh, a little different different for me. Uh, first of all, I don't watch pregame shows. I generally find them to be annoying. And the only football I'm watching right now is I watch the NFL Red Zone channel, which is, it doesn't show any particular game. It just cuts into the really good parts of all the games that are going. And so they're just constantly changing. So I didn't have to sit through all of that. You don't catch the commercials. I, I see no commercials at all. Um, but because I, partially because I wasn't inundated with it like you were, but also partially because of my family, it was a very different day for me. First of all, trying to explain to my children mm-hmm. why this was a, a special day, why this was a day 
that you know that we remember and and talk about um, when September 11th happened 2001 um, we my wife was pregnant with our first child my son and I had worked all night the night before and was at the office and had fallen asleep about an hour before the planes hit I had shut my office door and laid down on the floor to, to take a nap Nobody knew where I was. So for three hours on the day of September 11th, nobody could find me. <laughs> and my wife is home Please, pregnant. Please tell me that somebody thought, oh my gosh, Joey is somehow involved in this. <laughs> my wife is home pregnant, can't get a hold of me, and is convinced that something has also happened in Utah, and I'm dead. Because that's just where her mind goes automatically. Anytime there is a, a, a siren going past our house, I get a phone call. Are you okay? I'm like, yeah, I'm fine. What's going on? Oh, the, I just heard the ambulance and the fire truck drive by. I wanted to make sure it wasn't you. <laughs> so my wife is a bit, a bit nervous about things like that. So she was absolutely freaking out. I mean, she was just scared to death. And when I found out about it, I was certain that they, I was being put on. I was looking all over the internet, looking for the one guy who was willing to say, yes, this is all a huge hoax. It's a stunt for some movie that's coming out this fall. You know, I, I, it took me a couple hours to be convinced that this was a real thing that had happened. I, I, you know, I had, I had a hard time believing it. Um... And so, for my wife, it's a, it's a big day, actually, every year. She... She still kind of gets, I don't know if you could call them flashbacks, but she relives that moment every year on September 11th. So she stayed in bed all day Sunday having a panic attack because that's what she does on September 11th every year. And so I'm trying to explain to our children what's going on with mom today and trying to help them understand, you know, that our country was attacked by some very angry people and, you know, trying to get trying to get this through their heads. So for me, it was a very weird and... I wouldn't necessarily say emotional, but I would say a uh, what's the term I'm looking for when you when you think back uh, nostalgic nostalgic yeah because you know it was you know just a few short months later and my my first child was born and so you know his birthday will always be very co closely connected to that event for me yeah. Which is weird because your son's only seven years old. Which <laughs> I'm, I'm not sure how that math works out. Now, I, I want to be clear. I, I'm sure that there may be some of our listeners who are saying, oh my gosh, Pete, you're a jackass for saying that. Well, I'm sure they say that every week. <laughs> yes, but specifically for this. I'm not defending you know, that I'm not a jackass for other reasons. I'm confident I am. But for this specifically... I, and I can understand that. I, I, I am willing to admit that I wasn't really that affected by the events of September 11th in any regard beyond, yeah. you know, being a spectator yeah. watching it happen. And I, I watched the second plane fly into the tower. Um, I, I just... I, I get... Okay, 10th anniversary, you have to make sure that you you celebrate that. As I joked with you, I think last week, when I said, do you ever think that uh, September 11th is going to be uh, celebrated with fireworks? <laughs> you know, and, and that was 
kind of a, a joke and <laughs> and whatnot. But you know, it's seriously people lives were changed and affected because of yeah. of those events. I just. I guess I'm the type of person that wants to move on. I don't want to sit here and dwell on things over and over and over and over again. And maybe I was just frustrated because I wasn't getting as much football as I wanted to. And I had to see the same stupid kids singing that terrible song over and over again. That it just, it was a little too much for me. It did make me think about um, the people who are around during the strike of Pearl Harbor. Mm. And... You know, at this point in their lives, they're getting people talking to them and saying, so what was it like to be around back then and stuff like that? And I started thinking, you know, in 10, 15 years, people are going to be coming, you know, children will be coming to us and saying, what was it like to be alive during the September 11th plane strikes? You know, what 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 was going through your mind and things like that? And so it, it kind of helped me put myself, I guess, in a little bit in their shoes and, and understand mm. why, you know, some of those guys may not necessarily want to talk about this. It wasn't necessarily this great and glorious America rising up day for them. It was just a bad thing that happened, and let's move past it. Well, you really inserted yourself into the greatest generation there, didn't you? <laughs> Who do you think you are? Well, I, I think it yet remains to be seen who's the greatest generation. Because they didn't know I had been born when they coined that term. <laughs> um, well, anyway... Uh, uh, for not wanting to really discuss September 11th, we certainly did take a few sure. minutes to do that here. And, and I, I want to echo your sentiment and say, you know, thank you, Cy, for the, for the warm thoughts. Yeah. Um, okay. Uh, this, the other email I wanted to address is uh, Brainy Smurf, who has two pages of stuff before we get into the actual <laughs> episodes. episodes. So I thought, okay, this seems like something we should cover at the beginning rather than in the middle of when we're doing the episode. Okay. Uh, so, what's up, my favorite Mormons? Uh, oh, that's, sorry, I said that in the form of a question. It should have been an, an exclamation. What's up, my favorite Mormons? I don't feel like that, that was more of a period. Let's get an exclamation point out of it. <laughs> uh, so, I just downloaded the amazing Three Peter Award. Thank you. If only it were possible to convey my countenance of grateful dismay through this email. <laughs> well, let's just say that I am not hungry anymore. <laughs> I... <laughs> Which, by the way, if you ever want to find out, you need to start stepping it up on the Facebook Find of the Week thing. <laughs> Um, uh, let's see. I think you dudes should know that I am typing this in Penn State's library, and I have the picture displayed so that hundreds of students are hopefully sharing the joy <laughs> as they walk by and inadvertently grant, glance at my screen to behold. What I have dubbed a documentation of forlorn mastication. <laughs> that was my best brainy smurf voice, by the way. Brandy Smurf. Um, I am going to a party here tonight, and I'm going to try and print out my reward to hang on the door, <laughs> if that's okay with you dudes. Yes, that is totally fine. <laughs> Any of the Facebook finds of the week, you guys are more they're, than welcome. They're yours to do with what you Yes, will. just please don't post them on Facebook, because I don't want to give away, yeah. you know. The people who haven't won the award don't deserve to see what the award is. That's right. Um... So, did you dudes know that the C 
of LDS of Latter Day Saint is contemporary is a contemporary example of the box. I have no idea what he's talking about with the C, but he's going to go on and explain okay. something here. So, Brainy's perfect. I have no idea what you meant by that first sentence. The C. It's the C. Capital I don't, letter C. Capital letter C. Christ. I, okay. It could be possibly. I don't know. Let, let's go on. All right. Just as he uh, just as he rejected the dualism to which the shadow slash Vorlons are hopelessly locked in, the Latter Day Saints rejected Saint Augustine of Hippo's assertion that humans are helplessly born into original sin. Church, I bet. C is probably church. Could be. That would make sense. Yeah. I read that four times. <laughs> Um, okay, continuing. You see, Augustine felt it, uh, it necessary to doctrinize humans. Separation from God. Augie was also feeling super guilty for having lived such a lecherous life of debauchery, in addition uh, to being a Manichaean. It was his own self-perceived separation from God that he was addressing as he ascribed his famous treatise on realism as being born into the collective crappiness of sin created by Eve in the second creation story of Genesis, or Lilith from the first creation story of Genesis. To this, Mormons proverbial, proverbially say, Get the heck out of our theological universe, Augie. <laughs> in a much nicer way than I am capable of. I just thought it appropriate to articulate the Mormon response to original sin as demonstrated through the mythology of Babylon 5. Sure. Interesting little doctrinal yeah. uh, tidbit there. Um, I also must apologize to all of my LBSers for failing to include a linear quote of the week last week. It was obviously, quote, initiating getting the hell out of here maneuver, close quote. <laughs> Also, since I don't have a quote uh, this week for Lanier as I am out of town, I will retro-submit the, quote, push me every two minutes button. Close quote. Okay. That was awesome. It was very much, uh, it very much reminded me of Sai's everything's okay button. <laughs> and by the way, Sai, thank you immensely for introducing me to Mr. B, the gentleman rapper. He is amazing. I really like his song, let the uh, let me smoke my pipe and the one about smoking crack. Very cheeky. And what's up, John? You will be receiving this message on time delay, of course. But rest assured, all of the arrangement arrangements are in place to facilitate your return. I can't say much more since the overlords are obviously hearing this as well. But <laughs> results are being achieved, and the code word is Druplet. <laughs> <laughs> I guess we'll find out. <laughs> Which brings us to Joey, Joey, Joey. Did I actually hear you say last week that you were unable to sit through the pilot of a television series? <laughs> Albeit, the miniseries of Battle Battlestar Galactica is a super long pilot. It does end with a legendary speech. And how many people have you encouraged to endure the gathering? It's a good point. Given the massive amount of dismissals and suspensions of disbelief necessary to make the Babby Five pilots stomachable, I failed to see how the miniseries is so bad. It provided 
a an allegorical sci-fi take on how our nation was coping and responding to an unprecedented terrorist attack. Another question asked by the protagonist is, do we deserve to be saved? Battlestar Galactica was admittedly made up as it went along. BSG also has some of the strongest female characters in sci-fi. Consider some more questions that the series of BSG offers. Okay. Are angels real? When does an insurgency cross the lines of morality? Can a government continue after abandoning its sovereign land? Does God just organize intelligence, or does he create life? However, I only need to make one point. Hot chicks. Babby 5 offers Mira, Talia, Lita, the Asian chick, and Susan the lesbian. Who does the gathering offer? Delenn? These are JMS's own words from JMS Speaks. Delenn was originally going to be a fairly sexually ambiguous character. A male character played by a female with a computer-altered voice. But we couldn't make the alteration sound good enough to satisfy us. So we left her a her. Check out the chicks of uh, Battlestar Galactica for comparison. Grace Park, Xena Warrior Princess, and both from JMS's series, Jeremiah, Candace McClure, the barely clothed former supermodel, uh, Trisha Helfner. I rest my case. I don't know who any of those went, those last ones were. <laughs> uh, you've seen the beginning of Battlestar Galactica, right? Yes. The blonde. Okay. She's in the she, she's the series. Oh, I thought she died. Well, you'll have to just all right. Uh, to to answer this, the question of you know why I'm having so much trouble with the Battlestar Galactica pilot when I can watch the Gathering. <laughs> when I was a teenager and the Gathering came on television, I had lots of time to spend investing in things that weren't going to be any good. <laughs> And find out that they were good. Now that I'm older, I have a lot less free time, and so I'm more judicious about where I spend it. And I haven't had a whole lot of people come to me and say, man, Battlestar Galactica is amazing. You've got to watch it. Most people that I talk to say, yeah, it was okay. I, I really enjoyed it. Season 1 and 2 were fantastic. You haven't finished the series yet. I haven't, no. So but, I can't count your opinion. But I'm, I'm still going into it. And I would say that uh, season one and two were fantastic. They really were. When, when you get to the end, if you tell me that the the course of the show overall was well worth my time, I would sit down and watch it. But you so you, far, you can't I take Brainy is... Smurf's idea? You can't take his thoughts on this? You shove him under the bus? I so shove him under the bus. bus. I'm saying I need more than one person. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'll give you that because I am going to be watching it, so... Yeah. That, uh, that's certainly possible. Well, hurry up. <laughs> um, okay. The, uh, continuing on. The Prophets slash Wormhole Aliens versus the Vorlon. I have been waiting for the DS9 comparisons. Not wanting to not spoil anything, I thank Fishhead for submitting the insightful list of comparisons last week. Both DS9 and Babby 5 deal with answering questions and exploring mysteriousness of uh, discovering new questions. Here are some less insightful insights 
that the brain has noticed. The Brian, sorry, the Brian. Names of our heroes, Ben Sisko, the wormholes call him the Sisko. The box, we call him the box. <laughs> the show Not sure him, that was intended, but... The show uh, calls him the one. <laughs> Can we go with that one? <laughs> sure, sure. Beasts of Burden. The shadows are the bad guys, and they need to use the brains of other bipeds for CPUs. The Parace, and I know I'm mispronouncing that, sorry for all you DS9 fans, and the Founders are the bad guys. The Paw are non-corporeal and imprisoned, and opposed to hibernating while trying to pronounce their 10,000 letter name. <laughs> the Founders are smart enough to create their own sentient races. The Vorta and the Jem'Hadar, to, uh, to respectively handle administrative duties and military force. This makes me wonder if the Shadows knew how to grow CPU brains themselves instead of harvesting them. Maybe they were able to grow brains, but they chose to use younger brains to better suit their ideals. Okay. In the DS9 pilot, the Cisco does not encounter the wormholes until the 55 minutes into the 90-minute episode. I am only concerned with Cisco's conversation with the non-corporeal aliens who are on the other side of the Bajoran wormhole. For those who are unfamiliar, Cisco travels through the uncharted wormhole. He and, other, uh, and another character land on what they think is a planet. The other character sees an idyllic nature setting. The Cisco sees himself standing on a rock face, with desolate horizons and storms everywhere. The wormhole aliens he encounters use other characters on the show to talk to him. These scenes in Emissary are almost identical to when the Box and Delenn converses with the rival first ones. The only superficial difference is that, the, is that one scene is a white background and the other is black. The difference for me is in the writing. The wormhole aliens truly seem alien. The first thing they say is, It is corporeal, a physical entity. It is also responding to stimuli, linguistic communication. The definition of time needs to be established. The Cisco has to explain how his consciousness can stand to perceive linear time instead of everything at once time. The aliens are confounded by the concept of consequences. They say, what comes before now is no different than what is now. It is one's existence. I appreciate this delivery better than Kosh's enigmatic three-edged sword proverbs. DS9 provides the questioning of what is consciousness and how we perceive time. Referring to the memory of losing his wife, the wormholies simply say, you exist here. Why? The Cisco was choosing to remain under the cover of grief and pain instead of facing his problems. He learns to not live in the past. This is a succinct delivery and, is, and I re reconsidered my existence as a corporeal, temporal entity for a brief moment. I was wondering about Pete's comments regarding Lorian holding knowledge over the box and the audience's head. I think the word lording was used. Uh, is that not the style of the entire three seasons of Kosh? 
Throughout the first three seasons, we are led to believe that the Vorlons are so mysterious and wondrous. I never heard Kosh say anything that even weighed as much as Lorian's tick-tock talk. I will sum this up some other time. Okay. The ends there. All right. Whew. That was a lot. All right. You doing okay there? Facebook find of the week. Go. No, nope, I told you you have to do it. Wait, I have to do it. What do you mean I have to do it? I had not had time yet to watch all the entries, and you failed to provide me with a working internet connection. <laughs> I did. It's at my office. <laughs> Let's transport there now. All right, our transporter isn't working. <laughs> um, you know what? I really enjoyed uh, some of the stuff that uh, listener Carbonite Man um, had put out there. I uh, I like that he found... <laughs> ben and Jerry's version of his name <laughs> that we gave him. Um, I would really like it if he were to try that and let me know if it's any good. Okay. That'd be great. Uh, but in the end, I ended up... I think that the winner should be um, the... Uh, let's see. Let, let me get his name right. Uh, Mr. B, the Gentleman Rapper. Okay. Uh, that apparently Psy had okay. posted. And you did get a chance to listen to that. Yes. You enjoyed that, yes? It was pretty funny, yeah. I really, really enjoyed that. Uh, I thought that that was a great, great take on a genre that I find generally pretty annoying. Uh, okay. And it was it was very funny for me. I have to say, I actually, I think I enjoyed that more than the epic rap battles of history between Gandalf and Dumbledore. Oh jeez, yeah. The, the Gandalf and Dumbledore thing was. I have seen a couple of the other epic rap battles in history ones, and some of them are kind of funny. Uh, I think there was. I want to say there was Abraham Lincoln and Douglas did one against each other, hmm. and that one was pretty funny. Stephen Douglas, you mean? Yeah. Okay. Uh, it may not have been Stephen Douglas. I thought it was, but I can't remember for sure now. But yeah. So it's just that Dumbledore one. I didn't I, again. Gandalf so clearly could wipe the floor with Dumbledore that it was... Anyway. Really, he can? Yes. Uh, uh, Dumbledore's pretty amazing. Uh, Gandalf, uh, last time I I checked, he he barely did any real magic. Where is the magic that he did? Where is it? I will bring you the 15-volume set, The History of the Lord of the Rings, where you can read about all the magic that Gandalf did. Uh, he didn't do anything in Lord of the Rings. He just rode around <laughs> on a white horse for a while, trying to, you You're know... trying to get the middle finger, aren't you? <laughs> <laughs> well, if you I didn't were trying get it, to provoke me. <laughs> if I didn't get it for not, you know, providing an internet connection, I feel pretty safe tonight. <laughs> Um, all right, so uh, uh, Sai will make sure that we send you out a, uh, a reward to compensate with uh, where you have received them. Yeah. I don't know if it's two or three yet. He could be our second three, Peter. He could be. I can't, I can't tell I you how pen because I can't go check the internet. Oh, well, uh, thanks for mentioning that. <laughs> Again. Uh, okay, Joey's Culture Corner, or am I going to have to do that now, too? You have to do that now. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Joey's Culture Corner this week. Uh, by the way, I thought of a tagline for Joey's Culture Corner. Oh. Where we put you in the corner and make you listen to culture. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you need to have Dee, Dee work on a little logo for you, then. 
Uh, Joey's Culture Corner this week is the Isaac Asimov novel, The End of Eternity. This is a time travel novel. Really good one. Um, the, the idea is that there is a, a portion of time. So outside of our time-space continuum, there's a second time-space continuum called Eternity. And people can move up and down that timeline at will and then step into our, our time. So starting at the late 27th century and all the way up to the heat death of the universe, they can insert themselves into the time stream and affect change. And this has actually created a whole entire subculture of people who are pulled out of time into eternity taught how to manipulate time and how to calculate the effects of a particular manipulation. And they create a stable Earth environment. And they keep Earth from ever getting too far technologically so that we can destroy ourselves. They, they create um, trade between time periods. So if, you know, in the 75th the 7,500th century, they create uh, a new kind of energy field. Then they will export that energy field to the earlier centuries so that they can have it. And they'll maybe go get still living trees. You know, the, all the trees have died off. Right? They'll get living trees from the early 20th centuries or the later 20th centuries and pull those into the 75th. So they, they do all this trade back and forth. It sounds like the, uh, the plot of... Uh... Star Trek IV, the one with the whales. <laughs> yeah, a little bit. Although there is trade going on. It's not just outright theft. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Um, the, the, the interesting idea behind the whole thing is... Time travel... They, they, meet this, they introduce this character who, it turns out, is the one who invented eternity. Created the ability to travel in time. He doesn't live until the 7,500th century, okay? So they call it the 75th in, in the novel. But we've had time travel since the 24th century. And that's because in the 75th century, he travels back in time to the 24th century to invent it. Right. I can't say a whole lot more without giving the whole novel away, but the events that take place are incredibly unexpected. Um, the, the paradox is solved through the course of the book. And I, you know, I just think this is a really good time travel story. Uh, so what's the big idea? The big idea is... Then <laughs> this is the reason I selected it. Um, the big idea is almost shadow-like. It is, if we actually had the ability to travel in time as a race, we would probably choose safety and comfort over growth as a race and we would stagnate as a result hmm. and therefore it would be a bad thing for humanity to ever actually get their hands on time travel technology because we would stagnate according to this author according to Isaac Asimov, well according to the characters in, in the story that he wrote and so it's kind of shadow like where it's you know we're, we're actually going to create conflict because if we weed out the conflict, we also weed out the, the rapid growth that comes as a result of the conflict. I see. I see. Thumb up. I enjoyed it. Really, really big thumb up? Yeah. 
Hmm. Okay. I, I love a time travel story, so. So that was... Uh, the End of Eternity by Isaac Asimov. And how does that fit into his, like, big, long It's arc? not part of the, of it's, the it's foundation a series. Yeah, it's a standalone. Okay. Okay. Um, I guess we'll move into episodes then. Okay. Uh, we will be covering episodes five through eight of Babylon 5, season four. Uh, the Long Night. The Long Night. As the Army of Light prepares for war with the Shadow... Londo and Veer plot the assassination of Emperor Cartagia. Okay, good episode. Yeah. Really enjoyed this episode. So it starts off with something. We may have talked about this before, so if we have, go ahead and feel free to stop me. But the whole idea of... Let me stop you there. Okay. <laughs> We've heard enough of your ideas. We don't need you polluting no, it's, this it's not anymore. My idea. It's a question I have. Oh, all right. Uh, okay. The whole idea of personal logs being delivered as voiceovers... It bothers me. Does it bother really? you? It does. No, I like it. Um, I like it's a really nice way of telling the story. Here's what bothers me about it. We always... Unless they're doing these personal logs with some kind of mental recording device, it doesn't make sense how the personal logs so closely track what we're seeing on screen. That's the point. We're getting the the show... And the tell at the same time. And it's a nice way of being able to blend the two of those. I understand from a writing standpoint why it's done. But as a consumer of the medium, it bothers me. Because when I sit down to write my journal, it's not, you know, I don't write every single moment that happened in the exact order that it happened. I'm not... Well, clearly you're doing it wrong. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> is that how you write in your journal? I don't write in my journal. Oh, Pete. I, there is nothing for posterity that I need to keep beyond this podcast right here. <laughs> this is your journal. Yes, this is my stream of consciousness. Okay, that, that's the thing. is My stream of consciousness doesn't necessarily follow the exact flow and pacing of the world as it happened. And I don't think anyone's does. I, well, I... Okay. Without other people here... Within the our gallery. Let, let me text the father of the podcast. <laughs> <laughs> no, we'll just get another cryptic answer back. Um, okay, so the Shadow are attacking Vorlon-touched planets now. Yes. And this is a pretty wicked... Weapon? Yeah. Really, really big. Um, they've got their own planet, planet killer, killer, essentially. Let me read from the J. Michael Straczynski book here. Having introduced a Vorlon planet killer in the preceding episode, I needed to come up with something for the shadow side that would be just as powerful. But it couldn't look or feel like the same thing. Just one more big ship. I racked my brain for days trying to come up with something cool, but nothing came. Finally, I turned to Harlan Ellison, Babylon 5's conceptual consultant, who was on call for exactly this kind of thing. I need a shadow planet killer, I explained as we stood downstairs in his office, shooting pool. Something visually cool and very, very scary. <laughs> I just imagine that this guy, Harlan Ellison, shows up to the studio every every day. He goes to his office and just sits there and waits. <laughs> <laughs> like, this is what he is paid for. You clearly don't know Harlan Ellison He just sits all. there and he's wait, or he goes and he plays pool, just waiting for any of the Babylon 5 people to come in and say... We need your help. <laughs> yeah, that's not Harlan Ellison, dude. 
He smacked another ball into the pocket, took five seconds, and had an answer for me. I pass on the specifics of his speed just in order to answer the question, so what exactly did Harlan do on the show? <laughs> that was the sort of thing he did. When the need arose, he saved my ass. <laughs> Here's what you do, he said. You've got this scary-looking cloud, and, it's com and it completely surrounds the planet. Inside the cloud, there are thousands, just thousands of missiles, nuclear-tipped, which are all fired down simultaneously at the planet. But they don't detonate on the surface. No, they continue to bore deep down into the surface and blow the planet apart from the inside out. That cool enough for you? The next day at a production meeting, I explained the concept to everyone else. Our producer, George Johnson, listened to the explanation, nodded silently in for a moment, and then said, Thousands and thousands of missiles, huh? That must be a real bitch to reload. <laughs> <laughs> I just thought that was interesting that it took Harlan Ellison all of five seconds to come up with that idea. Very yeah. creative man. Sometimes when you're down in the trenches, you just need someone's fresh idea. You know, I bet if Straczynski had just managed to walk away for a little while, you know, think go about... Out the, go out in the parking lot and pass out. <laughs> yes. <laughs> okay. Um, a phrase is used here that I found interesting. And the first time I had heard about this was in relation to a webcomic. And that phrase is... Giants in the Playground. Okay. Now, I know it as the website that I go to that writes The Order of the Stick. Right. Which is a, uh, a role-playing game for Dungeons & Dragons. It's a... It's a webcomic about D&D. Yeah. It's, it's super fun. I really enjoy it. Um, anyway, they, he, he calls the website Giant in the Playground. Yes. GiantITP.com. Um... This term, Giants in the Playground, obviously didn't come from Rich Berlou, no. who was the author of that webcomic, <laughs> and it uh, you know, possibly could have come from no. Straczynski, it's, but I'm willing to bet it's something... It goes all the way back to Greek mythology. Okay. I can't tell you the exact reference on right now, and unfortunately we have no internet, so I can't look it up either. Well, we'll, we'll wait for the internet to come back up. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> we already tried that. <laughs> um, okay, so, yeah, alright, Giants in the Playground. Uh, I'm assuming, yeah, we, we I may don't have know, internet big, here, Big, big uh, creatures who are out there, you know, pl playing in the midst of children. And that, I guess, kind of makes sense. Okay, so here's an interesting thing I did find online searching for this. This is from Rich Berlue, Giant in the Playground Games, on his Frequently Asked Questions page. What is Giant in the Playground? Answer. Well, I picked the name when I first signed on to the Wizards.com message boards in April 2001. As memory serves, I had been reading the boards but not posting for a few weeks, when I saw a topic in which everyone who had replied thus far was a complete idiot. In a fit of snippiness, I registered and decided to pick a name that would have a connotation of intellectual superiority. Now, I am also a lifelong fan of the Babylon 5 television series. <laughs> and at one point during the early fourth season, Sheridan refers to the ultra-powerful Vorlons and Shadows as giants in the playground, unaware of whom they are stepping on. The quote later made it into the... Well... <laughs> so I decided that, that had the right 
level of implication to the, for the bozos to which I was about to respond. After that, I started posting a lot and never thought I'd built reputation or anything, but in 2002, when I was announced as a finalist in the, fa- in the fantasy setting search, a lot of people said, oh, we know who you are. At this time, I realized that the screen name Giant in the Playground had as much brand recognition as my real name. <laughs> so I decided to keep it for my website and future web activities. Fascinating. Well, so that's cool. Berlou, at least, gives credit to Straczynski. Well, that's cool. That's, that's nice. Um, okay, yeah, so basically they are little ants and, uh, you know, the Vorlons and the Shadow are just going to go merrily along their way and they aren't going to care who gets in the way. Yep. And there's really probably not that much that uh, the lesser races... <laughs> the lesser races? Young, younger. Younger races. <laughs> can really do about it. Um, Sheridan uh, has this conversation during that conversation with Ivanova. He says, you know, I just wanted to thank you for everything you've done. You've been a great second officer. Really appreciate you kind of talk. It it irritates and frustrates me that he never has this conversation with Garibaldi. Yeah. And you have to wonder how different things might have gone if he would have taken the time to do that. Yeah, I, I think it, it's clear. I mean, he screwed up the whole Garibaldi issue. Yeah. And I think Straczynski's doing it on purpose. Absolutely. He's, he's trying to set that in there. Yeah. Um, I enjoyed... The lighting in that scene, okay. I thought they did a very, very good job. I, I didn't love necessarily the, you know, the interplay back and forth. I didn't think it was like stellar acting, but I really enjoyed the lighting. I thought that they captured the mood, which is kind of this somber, like, okay, this is like the end kind yeah. of thing. It's a little dark. It's a little. It's not the. Every time we've seen that room, it's been the lights have been on. Yeah, there is actually one other time we've seen it with lights off. It's where the. The black preacher came in and spoke to Sheridan about, hey, Dylan loves you and you need to empty your worry tank. Yeah, I don't remember that. Um, oh, Jakar tells, uh, says, your heart is empty, yes. Malari. An empty eye sees through to an empty heart. Your heart is empty. Did you know that, Malari? What's he mean by that, do you think? I think he means that Londo doesn't do things because... They're the right thing. He does them because they're expedient. He doesn't have hope. He doesn't have a dream anymore. He's just kind of reacting. I I don't think that that's fair. Because I think this is kind of... I mean, this is clear in the last, you know, five or six episodes that we've had. We've finally got the turning point for Londo. He's finally coming around and starting to choose to act in appropriate ways rather than to act out of selfish ways the ways yes but he's acting out of despair he knows the the devastation that will come to his planet if Cartagia is allowed to remain the emperor so so if you're Jakar what what do you want him to do differently you want him to face himself and deal with the fact that he doesn't have he's not being an active player he's reacting to everything that's around him I would disagree with that. Not that the event is wrong, not that the action being taken is wrong, but that the motivation behind it is wrong. Hmm. I don't know. Okay. uh, Okay, creepy scene with the the court jester (laughs) and Cartagia in in every respect. It's very interesting to me here that uh, Cartagia... It's just not circumspect at all about his plans. 
He, he is fully voiced telling everyone in the court, yeah, I'm going to be off Centauri Prime and you're all going to die and burn for me. And all of them seem just fine with that. Yeah, just cheap. Um, okay, so it's decided. Londo is going to kill Cartagia. Yes. He's going to get his hands dirty. And uh, the part that uh, Jakar is going to play here is that uh, he's supposed to create a distraction. Londo is gonna has weakened the chains that uh, um, uh, Jakar is supposed to be wearing. Then we come to find out Cartagia had the chains replaced. Replaced because he thought they looked weak. <laughs> so Jakar, not knowing this, still thinks that the chains are going to be weakened, and he decides, "I'm busting out of here." And breaks the chains that bind him. Yeah. And he causes a big ruckus uproar, and people are fighting every which way. And Londo's like, oh, uh, Emperor, this way. Let's get out of here, please. Which I found a, a little ridiculous. What do you mean? I guess I'm used to knowing what the Secret Service would do. Okay. And the Secret Service... If there's any sort of danger or ruckus, would whisk the president away in a heartbeat. They would just take over and bam, he's gone out of the room. He's protected. Gotcha. No, the as far as I can tell, they're gonna fight against the the, the assailant, the yeah. the people who are around them, and ignore the emperor. <laughs> okay. And Londo is able to take him away to a back room, and he's gonna try and kill him with this thing. Cartagia somehow accidentally bumps it out of Londo's no, hand. No, Cartagia punches Londo. Oh, that's right. That's what it kind was. Kind of backhands him. Yeah. He drops it. Veer manages to pick it up and is apparently just holding it out when Cartagia bumps into him and Veer kills, kills Cartagia. Yeah. Which... Okay, I know they were trying to go for the whole, yeah, they won't even notice it'll, it's got this special sealant that'll seal the hole as it's pulled out. Okay, but what about the hole in the shirt? The clothes now? Okay, well, I guess we'll look past this. Um, Anyway, it, Veer kills him. Yeah. Let me read from the script book here real quick. As with most writers, after a while, your characters will begin to talk to you. This was true for the closing of the Jakar narration, as I mentioned in Season 3, and especially true for the scene in which Londo is set to kill Cartagia. I had always intended for Londo to be the one who sinks the needle into Cartagia's chest, but when it came time to write the scene, I couldn't bring myself to finish it. Something was wrong. That's when Veer, or at least the part of my brain that speaks for Veer, stepped forth and said, let me do it. Why, I thought. Because if Londo kills Cartagia, for him... It's business as usual. But if I do it, I'll have tremendous regret and remorse, and you can play that. It'll be stronger, trust me. I did, and it worked. This, for me, is one of the key things I try to tell everyone who approaches me with aspirations of being a writer. You have to be able to listen to your characters. Don't push them around. Let them act in a way that's natural to them. Allow them to come to you with their own ideas and their own voices. Make them real enough that they can argue with you inside your head. Hmm. I think Straczynski might be a little... Uh... Schizophrenic? 
maybe. Maybe, but he writes good... Uh, good TV. Good TV sometimes. Um, so, Londo becomes Prime Minister, and Veer later on gets drunk. Drunk. And he's doing it because he can't handle what he just did. Yeah. It's it's beyond Veer's character. He would never think to do that. Right. But he I, I, I like the one to question. dirty his hands. He asks Londo, he says, How many drinks until I can look in the mirror and not see myself anymore? Because I keep looking, but I'm still there. He is trying to wash away that guy who did that thing. You know, I... I I understand what they were going for in that scene, but Veer, uh, the the actor who plays uh, Veer first, he doesn't do a good drunk. Drunk. And that spoils that scene. Because I think it can be so much more powerful because you really are dealing with somebody who is had... Innocence. Yes. Innocence, great. is, Is ripped from him. Albeit accidental, still is his innocence taken away in this. Um, could have been a nice way to to do it, but I it just bombed. It really I didn't say it bombed. It was it for wasn't me, as good it, as it me, could it have bombed. been. But I, I would I would agree it wasn't as good as it could have been. The the rest of the scene though it is good. I mean it's okay. It it, it still works the the Londo stuff, but that those first minute or two with Veer stumbling around trying to pretend to be drunk is okay. poor. So, next we go, in at least in my notes here, we go to Brian Cranston. Yeah. <laughs> How? From Malcolm in the Middle. <laughs> you know, I, I never noticed when I By watched way, Malcolm in the wh- Middle. What's, his la- what's their last name? What's the family's last name? Because I only know their first names. I don't know that they ever find out in the show. They don't find out in the no, show. I, I don't know that they ever re, like wrote into the script what their last name was. Because that's all I know him as is Hal yeah. from Malcolm in the Middle. Um, anyway, so uh, when when I watched Malcolm in the Middle, I didn't recognize this guy. I didn't rec- didn't make the connection. But the first time I watched Babylon Five after having seen Malcolm in the Middle, I was like, Oh my gosh! How did I not know that that's that guy? <laughs> yeah, good old Erickson. Um, but so Sheridan tells him basically, here we want you to keep this file on your computers that talks about the secret base, and we want you to fight as though you're willing to die to protect it. And but at the end, you have to make sure the shadows get the file. This is an incredibly risky plan. I don't understand how this is supposed to work because. Every time we've seen a ship on this show get in a firefight, how it's, does it end? It's destroyed. It always blows up. Yeah. Always. And the, the, the great plan here is to put the file on the computer of the one ship that you know is probably going to blow up? Yeah, I, I thought the same thing. But I was willing to, to, to say, okay, strategically... You know, we've never actually seen the after effects of a battle. Yeah, we kind of see the shadows shimmer off sometimes, but how do we know that they aren't going back through and getting information? Or maybe there is some other of the shadows' helpers that have a way to that are doing it yeah, for okay. them. Right. Now, I, I, I'm completely there with you, 
But that's just the best thing that I could come up with sure. to make that whole scene work because the sentiment is right, but what we know about the story of you know the the world, the, the mechanics of the yeah. that world, it doesn't really make sense at yeah. all. Okay, and, I, and I'm with you. Yeah. Here's the trouble that I wrote down though. I didn't even plan on talking uh, about that. So Brian Cranston is sent to his death. Yes. And they make the they ask, "You're not a married man, are you?" And he says, "No." And then they respond with, "Well, there's that at least." <laughs> As though that somehow makes any difference whatsoever. Whether I think you're it's a, someone? Yeah, I think it is a terrible statement. Because in my mind, you send the most capable person to go and get the job done that you needed to have done. Well, it's not like Sheridan was going to say, oh, well, if you're married, then get back here. We need to put someone else in this role. What he's saying is, well, we know that you're the most capable. You are the person who's going to do this. I'm at least comforted by the fact that I'm not going to be having to call your wife and tell her. Yeah, but we don't actually know that. Because it's sort of like, oh, you're not married? Oh, thank goodness. Because, you know, that would be somehow worse. I don't think it would be worse at all. I, you're still sacrificing someone. Yeah, you're, you're not that gonna person's have to, life you're is You're not going to have lost. to face anyone else as a result of that sacrifice. I, he's, he's isolated. I just don't buy that okay. at all. I, it's just this idea that, okay, let's, let's send the single guys since that'll be, you know, easier for us. You know, thank goodness our consciences will be a little more clean. Here's here's the part that I an issue that I had with it. Rangers are required to be celibate. Are they required? Yeah, that's what that's what Marcus told us. Well, I think he just said that he was. No, he told us we are told to turn away from the fle- the temptations of the flesh or pleasures of the flesh, something like that. Uh, I don't know. It's part of the I Ranger feel like training. that's just Minbari stuff getting through there. Okay. I don't know. Um, it just I in my mind it's always been weird that he even asks him like he's a ranger, of course he's single. Rangers <laughs> can't be married. <laughs> well, my next question is we're all wringing our hands about Brian Cranston because he's the human. What about the rest of the Minbari who are sending we're sending the rest of them to their deaths? But it's we really only seem to care about uh, Erickson, Brian Cranston, and we really only give one statement about the rest of the Mimbari that are on that ship. Well, that's in keeping with the way that we deal with Mimbari throughout the show. They gladly give themselves in, in sacrifice. They I see that as they're second-hand citizens. Humans are the most important. <laughs> and I just think that that's... That's poorly done. Okay, I always they, thought they should have given more cultural. The, the the Minbari wouldn't want that kind of attention, whereas a human does. <laughs> I don't know. Um, okay, uh, in the end, uh, Talon calls Jakar a coward. That's not Talon. That's not. I thought for sure that was his name as he was talking to him. No. What's his name? I. I Jadok or something? Let me look it up here. It's not Jadok. I, I swear to you, Talon nope. is, is the name that they use. Talon is the guy with the sword. Jalorn. His name is Jalorn. Okay, could be that. Could it be is. that. It is that. I'm looking in the script here. Jalorn. Okay. 
They they all sound the same to me. <laughs> anyway, Jakar is basically being handed all of Narn. Yeah. We want you to be in control. And Jalorn says, Oh no, we've really got to follow the Centauri. They have things right here. And it's like, you guys are idiots. You've learned the wrong lesson yeah. from the, the Mimbari. Or from the excuse me, from the Centauri. And he's like, I want nothing to do with you people if this is the direction that you're going. Yeah. He I like how he says they are a lost people already on their way to self-destruction. They need no help from us. Yeah. As, yeah, because they really wanted to go, start to then go after uh, the Centauri and pay them back. And Jakar says, no, we need to rebuild. We need to focus on us. I, you know what I would love to have seen, and I think it could have worked, is Jakar take control. Because I think he is, or should be, the moral center of the Narn people now. He has the right frame of mind. Yes. He is the one person who is truly set up and ready to be the leader of the Narn people. And let him take control and set up now. <laughs> let him become the Valen, if you will, of the Narn people. Okay. And set up the Grey Council um, you know, on Narn. I think he could have done that. I think he could have done that, but... And then, then walk away... It would away. violate... The lesson that he is trying to teach right now. I, I don't disagree that he... Really what he needed to do was pick up a baseball bat or some blunt instrument and, and then beat, beat, that guy. beat him to death so that his <laughs> ideas could never go any further than that room. I think that's my line, isn't it, in this relationship? <laughs> the lines have blurred so much now. Uh, you know, my, thing, my takeaway from that scene has always been... I actually want to say that I think I was reading um, Atlas Shrugged for the second time when I watched this episode. It's like in the middle of my second read ever of Atlas Shrugged when this episode originally aired. And uh, when he says, when Jalan says, or Jalan says to Jakar, what have you endured? I, I always think, <laughs> boy, if that's not the cry of the looter, I don't know what is. <laughs> Look at my pain. See how bad my pain is? Do what I told you to do because of my pain. Yeah, yeah, that's, uh, uh, that's, uh, that's good. Uh, I don't have anything else to talk about here. I'm ready to move on. Listener comments in? Oh, yeah, those. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. You jerks keep getting in the way of Joey and I talking. <laughs> Uh, Moneybags. He says, Hey guys, Pete, you misquoted me. I said that things turned out okay with my wife, not turned out okay. <laughs> hmm. This is difficult over email. I meant to say that things are a-okay, not eh-okay. <laughs> Luckily, Mrs. Moneybags doesn't read these emails, so no harm was done. <laughs> She doesn't listen to the podcast either. <laughs> Some good episodes this week. And the Shadow War is over? Huh? I thought Into the Fire was later in the season. I really wish JMS had known he was getting a fifth season. I'll be saying that a lot from now on. Uh, the Long Night. Ivanov says she's always dreamed of leading a fleet like this into battle. I have a similar dream. I've always dreamed of watching someone on TV lead a fleet like this into battle. 
Man, I wish Cartaja could have been in more episodes. Seeing him dance with the Jester was awesome. I suspect he would have been in more episodes if JMS had known he was getting a fifth season. Yeah. Did Londo let the cat out of the bag when he said Emperor Turan uh, was trying to make peace when he died? <laughs> or is this acknowledging that the truth eventually got out, despite Londo misquoting the Emperor before he died? Uh, that was a question, by the way. I, I don't think we have a definitive answer. I've always wondered the same thing. Okay. The scene with the suicide mission is pretty intense. Of course, since they, since they have to send a character we just met, it lacks a little punch. All in all, a good episode. TV7, Sci-Fi7. Okay. Brainy Smurf. One retro question. Does Lorian have tendrils in addition to super long fingers? <laughs> After the jump was the floating goo ball um, uh, that was wait, wait after the jump was the floating goo ball what was really happening and the box was merely projecting the caves in his mind yes so he was just projecting the caves in his mind and he was stuck in that goo ball the whole time he was being held by Lorien the whole time yes so the he caves, actually the so caves he, are not a real place. So he wasn't actually on Zaha Doom. He was. He was down underneath the ground of Zaha Doom, but the, not in the caves. What the caves that he's seeing are completely a mental projection. Hmm. But there was a really big pit. There would have to be caves down at the bottom. No, it would just be a big pit at the bottom. I feel like Lorian could have gotten out of there sooner. <laughs> Lorian could have gotten out anytime he wanted to. <laughs> Was he creating his own experiences with his mind? One term for this we have used is solipsism. I recently read an article by a magician Pendulette about how he thinks he is solipsistic. Solipsistic? Solipsistic. I didn't know if the P was silent in that regard. His philosophy is a little sloppy, but he is a friend of JMS and we will see him in season 5. Zoot zoot. Oh, yeah. Can one empty eye only see one empty heart? Or did JMS forget that Londo has two hearts? <laughs> Granted that both of his hearts are at least two sizes too small. Maybe two Centauri uh, hearts equal one Narn heart. Um, Londo versus Iago. In an interesting way, Londo is also creating his experiences, but in a bad way, creating his own misery. He is an unapologetic endorser of genocide. He has personally facilitated countless uh, executions of innocent Narn. The shadows kill life forms out of some misguided aim to improve existence. Londo kills without regard or respect for living beings on any level. He is only concerned with his people's prestige. He is worse than the shadows. He is the ultimate megalomaniac. In a sense, he reminds me of the character Iago from Othello. Both of these baldies are plagued with some kind of mysterious motivated malevolence. Although the reasons for nefarious activity are revealed for both characters, the justifications don't seem to add up compared to the amount of evil they unfurl. 
Iago could not be that pissed from getting passed on a promotion. And Londo's sense of nationalism pales in comparison to his perpetual inability to stop murdering everyone. <laughs> Veer should kill him. Smell your organs, Captain Murderface. Uh, Sci-Fi 6, TV 7. What does he mean, smell your organs? It was the whole thing about the organs being cooked when they were oh, torturing right. people. Right, right. Be okay. Science fiction rating. Science fiction. I really think that this is good science fiction. Um, I wrote an eight after I, or sorry, I wrote a nine after I watched this, and I'm wondering if maybe I should adjust that down to an eight. Well, uh, you would end up where I'm at if you adjusted it down. I, I think I'm going to. I remember having just watched. I was like, oh wow, oh cool, because that was like the first sci-fi I had seen that week at all. Okay. So I'm gonna, I'm gonna go eight. Eight. Okay. I'm also at an eight. Just really good stuff here. Oh, okay. That's nice that you agreed with me. <laughs> uh, for television, uh, I thought this had some good scenes. And really, anything with Cartagia in it just seems a little better. And anything with Brian Cranston in it just seems a little better. Even though he did hardly anything, I really felt for the man. To stand up there and say, oh, I now understand what I'm being asked to do. I'll make sure that it gets done. They sent him to his death. Yeah. And he did it. I'm going to give it a seven. Uh, I only give it a six. I think there are a few parts that just feel a little clunky. You know what would have been better? Is that Brian Cranton's character, uh, Erickson, would have at some point ended up in his underwear. <laughs> Getting shaved by a Minbari. <laughs> Maybe, I don't know. In in whatever regard you want to, just because Brian Cranston's character seems to do that a lot. Um, there, there are just a few parts that I, I feel are a little awkward. I did want to mention the uh, scene where, where Jakar breaks the chains has always bothered me. There's just something felt really weird about it. I couldn't ever put my finger on it until I read the script book. And J. Michael Straczynski says, when we shot this scene, we got the zoomed-in close-up of Jakar's right hand wrapping around the chain, but we didn't ever shoot the left hand. And so when you see the left hand do it, it's just the right hand flipped. Oh, okay. And I think I must have picked up on that somehow, because it just seems... It's always felt awkward. It didn't feel bad for me. Uh, so I'm going to give it a six. The P5 rating is 8.82. Moving on to our next episode... Into the fire! Sheridan creates a crucible, hoping to force the truth to be revealed. Uh, okay. So, this seems like a dangerous plan. Yeah. <laughs> Which would result in the destruction of most everybody involved. <laughs> if it goes really how, you know, if, I would expect it to go. If, if anything doesn't go exactly <laughs> according to plan. Before we get into the episode. I want to read from the script book here. I think you'll get a laugh out of this. Year four was the year we went to war to save Babylon 5. It was the year of our greatest triumphs and still of our greatest despair. On the one hand, we'd come through great hardship to a fourth season. We'd established a firm foothold in the world of science fiction fandom, and the stories we heard during that time only helped to reaffirm that we were doing exactly what we needed to do. Case in point. As noted in prior volumes, we had a large contingent of fans among the real-world space community. Nowhere more so than at the Johnson Space Center in Houston, 
and the NASA Kennedy Space Center at Cape Canaveral in Florida. It was from this group that we learned that a coded passphrase used in Babylon 5, code 7R, had been given new life at NASA Kennedy. New Babylon 5 episodes were uplinked via satellite to stations around the United States almost a week before the actual air date. It was possible to view those episodes ahead of the air date if you had the right equipment. And needless to say, the good folks at NASA Kennedy had such equipment. <laughs> so each week, they bagged the show during the satellite downlink. And shortly thereafter... <laughs> what? Why do I feel like my tax dollars have been misappropriated? No, it gets better. It gets better. And shortly thereafter, word would go out via the center's PA system and email announcing a Code 7R. The engineers, scientists, astronauts, and programmers who knew what the code meant would quietly make their way to the NASA... Mission Control Room. <laughs> During a window when it wasn't being used for flight control of actual shell missions. And there, the newest Babylon 5 episode would fill each of the massive screens normally used to monitor and control our nation's space program. <laughs> I just, I couldn't stop giggling at the idea that, you know, NASA's out there stealing TV shows <laughs> and showing them on the mission control screens. Oh, man. Good uh, stuff. <laughs> wow. Uh, I hope they did all of that, like, on their, uh, on their lunch break or something. <laughs> goodness. Just goodness. Okay. So, we have... Uh, we are attacking Vorlon outposts. Yeah. And they managed to beat it. Yeah. They destroy it. And, uh, I guess that's kind of a big deal since... I love watching that fleet of White, Star, White Stars go to town, by the way. The way they coordinate their flight and stuff, that is, it's like a flock of birds. It's very organic. And since it's organic technology, it just, it really, I really appreciate it. I that's true. It. It, they did really look like chickens. Pluck <laughs> chickens. Um, which, uh, destroying the Borlon outpost, I mean, it's got to be a pretty big deal because we've seen how tough it is to destroy, like, an individual Vorlon. Yeah. It's not easy. Well, remember, we are using Vorlon guns to fire on the Vorlon outpost. Wouldn't they have already learned how to adapt to something like that? They're not the Borg, Pete. <laughs> well, no, we've heard about how the the uh, those ships... Learn, yes, the ships. But do the, do the because it stations? is well. I would imagine that they are still using yeah. living technology. I think you're inferring something that the show does not imply. That uh, may be, but still, <laughs> I would have thought. Uh, I don't know. They probably don't shoot at their own ships a lot. <laughs> <laughs> All right, we have some bit of uh, false philosophy that's brought to. Uh, Bear at the beginning. Okay. Um, apparently, to be interesting, to grow, and to change, life must be short. Okay. And I don't know that I fully believe that. And the biggest one that I found to be false was only those lives that are brief can believe that love is eternal. Yeah, that's actually way towards the end of the episode, but... No, that's right there at the very beginning. Nope. It's my second line in. You wrote it too soon. <laughs> no, well, 
Look, he talks about it there. He does. He, he talks about it after... At the end, he kind of is like... On, on it's one of the nice things you young people have is this idea of, of love. Yeah, go ahead and foster that. Even though it's completely false and it doesn't exist. It's not eternal. Love isn't eternal? No. According to Lorien, it's not. What, what Lorien is saying is that we have outlived the people we loved... And so, for us, that love is dead now because we outlived it by so much. I, well, I still disagree with that, even okay. if that is what it is he was saying. Okay. I, I still think that that is outrightly false. I don't believe that. I believe that is false doctrine. <laughs> and uh, just like uh, the, the Latter-day Saint said to Augustine, screw you, I say to Lorian, screw you. Okay. I consider love to be eternal. It, it, it's certainly not the first time that we've ever seen in science fiction or fantasy this proposal that there is a value to our lives being short. That, that yeah, we try and cram as much in as we can to right. learn as much and to grow because we don't have an extended period of time to really get to that point. It, I think we're kind of led to believe through this episode that Lorian's achieved as really is high as he's gonna go yes like he is the top of whatever it is that one could achieve too no it's the top of what he can achieve he has topped out he has plateaued and so there's nothing more that For can him. be done and so he's just I guess gonna hang out yep okay seems weird again whatever I okay. not a fan of Lorian or his philosophy. I, uh, I I just I I always compare it to, I mean Tolkien said basically the same thing between the elves and the humans. Yeah, well he was an idiot there too. <laughs> <All right. laughs> this podcast is so over. <laughs> uh, okay, we get some of the fun stuff. Uh, Londo finds out yeah. that okay. Morden was really the one behind Adira getting killed. And so he has him, uh, you know, brought before him. And, you know, Londo's pretty pissed. He's just angry. Goes nuts, starts throwing everything. I, I love, by the way, that Centauri, the Minister of Intelligence. Mm. Um, he's one of the few Centauri that, in, in the upper echelons of power, that strikes me as a real person. I don't know. I kind of felt like he was just doing his job. He, that's he, what I, but that, he well, that's was tied was. so much to I just do my job. But you know he, I just get this sense of of a competent man doing his job well from him. Why didn't he stand up and take care of any of the injustices going on amongst the Centauri then? Because he was appointed by the emperor. He was serving the emperor. Yeah, I just okay. I don't see him as anything outstanding or that we should hold up as a beacon of... No, that's not what I was saying. I was saying he seems like a normal person. Everyone else is either on a... They're, they're all on this grand scale. They're, they're either incredibly okay. heroic Do you mean, or incredibly demonic. Do you mean normal as far as Your average humans joke. go or normal as far as Centauri go? Normal as far as... Because I would consider him an abnormal centauri i would consider him 
abnormal compared to what we've seen of other Centauri. (laughs) But I have a hard time believing that all of Centauri are the way that the characters that we've seen in the episode are portrayed. Does that make sense? We're only seeing the highlights and the lowlights of each race. And the Centauri Minister of Intelligence just seems to be just your your middle class kind of guy. Hmm. All right. Well, you... Think whatever you would like about him. Okay. Um, uh, anyway. Uh, the, the anger, that, that the, the frustration that Londo goes through right here. What did you think about that? I mean, I know you hate the tearing up the room and destroying things. That's not what yeah, I'm talking l- about. Yeah, a little over the That's top. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm actually talking about why do you think he was so upset? The why is a good question. Uh, I think it's because he's realizing in how incredibly stupid he was. Okay. Uh, that he had been played by Morden for so long. Yeah. And just fit right into the hands of, of what the Shadow wanted of him. That's what I think. I, I've always come back to this idea of he, you know, it was his constant battle with Rifa over the influence of the Shadows that put Cartage on the throne, that created the whole situation that that just happened. And I think that he's now realizing, after being told that, you know, it was Morden that killed Adira, he starts to realize that all of this chain of events was him being manipulated and allowing himself to be manipulated. And I think the person that he's really angry about there, really angry at, is himself. He's realizing I'd like to believe what an idiot he was. I'd like to believe that. But I think that his anger seems to... I th- I feel like his anger is more directed at Morden. Okay. Whether it is or not, that's the way I perceive the character of Londo. Okay. Is it's directed more at Morden. And he has Morden brought before him. And, yeah. uh, you know, it, they have them holding him there. And he's just kind of standing there and Morden's like, What are you doing with me? I, I'm surly. If I was Londo, I would have like just kind of casually walked up and just kicked him so hard in the testicles. <laughs> and let me tell you, that is no small thing. I play soccer, have been for a long time. I can kick really hard. <laughs> and it I'm I'm I feel confident I could have probably, you know, just broken them. Pop, just, pop something? Yes. Just, uh, I like how much relish you're taking in the idea. I mean, really. Bursting someone's testicles. <laughs> if I'm in that position right there, you're darn right I'm going to take that swing with my foot. Okay. Because, you know, we're not going to outlast the yeah. night. Yeah. <laughs> um, I, I find it distressing how easy these shadows were to kill. The The two shadows that are... You know, lurking around Morden all all the time, they just shoot him with their normal guns a few times, and yeah, and the fact that they couldn't figure out what was gonna, what was happening, that uh, like the shadows are so stupid that they can't figure out. Oh, why do those guys have guns up by Londo? Why are they pointing them? At, wait, they're pointing What's that at me. What's going on? Maybe <laughs> if I stand really still. <laughs> They won't I, see me. I do like, you know, the, the we had seen earlier, I think it was in season three, when Londo was talking to Morden out in the hallway at Babylon 5. And 
he hears the shadows talking, mm-hmm. and he kind of looks and looks around. I like that they show us Londo has made this intuitive leap. He knows that those shadows are there because you know Londo had no other source of information as far as we know. Sure, to yeah. know that those keepers were there. The, the trouble is, I mean, how do the how do those guys guards know exactly where, where to, to shoot? shoot? And you know, it's, it's all convenient. Yes. Yeah. Okay. Whatever. We've subdued what what shadows were there. Uh, and Veer finally gets what he wants, <laughs> and which is to. Yeah, it seems weird that uh, uh, Veer or that Londo would potentially know what Veer had wanted. Uh, but uh, yeah, I guess I don't it all know works that, out. I don't know that we're supposed to get that. Uh, that Veer know that Londo knows this is exactly what Veer wanted. So much as he knows that Veer would want to have seen Morden dead. But it seems to work out incredibly well. It does work convenient. out really well. <laughs> like, oh, look, his head's on a pike. And uh, and they should never have shown the head. They should have just shown the camera from where the head was standing, looking down at Veer, with the flashback and him waving. I think that's enough for the audience. The head that they show, so fake. It doesn't look real. Yeah, it was okay. I would have been all right if they had just shown like the scalp portion, portion of it. Okay. Like just like a, a, cor- a, part a quarter shot of of the top of the of the skull or something like that, and and down onto okay. to Veer in that regard. I think yeah, you're right. It would have looked a little. They bit They shouldn't better. have shown the part where it was cut off. That just that was not. I, I didn't have a problem with it, but I think it's better if they don't. Okay. Okay, so the uh, the shadows and the Vorlon all take the bait, and they all start to show up and. Um, Wolf one five one six nine. No, that was Star Trek Next Generation. Um, yeah, they all show up at one place, and the first ones. Coriana six. I wrote down the sector, but now I can't find it in my notes. Uh, they start to kick butt, just plowing through things, and it's at this point that I think the the Shadow and the Vorlon actually start actively fighting each other, don't they? Yes. And it's sort of like they have to set off the asteroid nukes to really get their attention to notice that they're even there at all. Good morning, gentlemen. This is your wake-up call. (laughs) I love that line. Who gives that line? I don't remember. Sheridan. He he has linear transfer firing control of the nukes to his station. Oh, right, right, right. And then he's like, good morning, gentlemen. This is your wake-up call. (laughs) Great stuff. And then... Uh, so at the at, at the same time that this is happening, the Centauri show up to, um, the sorry, Vorlon. the Vorlon show up to the Centauri homeworld, and they're ready to start fighting, and it's conveniently at the exact same time that all of this big stuff is happening that that Centauri ship leaves, Vorlon ship, Vorlon ship leaves yeah. Centauri. Yeah, I, th- I think it's interesting that basically what happens is that Sheridan has just saved. Centauri Prime. Mm-hmm. And none of the characters notice. Never is Sheridan given attribution for that. They don't re- realize the timing, how closely it all worked out. Right. Yeah. I think it's good. I think it's a good thing for the show that nobody ever comments, wow, Sheridan, you saved Centauri Prime. Well, it would have been nice if Sheridan would have been able to come back later on and, you know, to tell Londo hey, you know what? I actually saved your planet. <laughs> I think it actually works better for the show that he doesn't. Um, okay, so Lorian ends up using Sheridan and Delenn 
to talk to the Shadow and the Vorlon. No. What? Yeah, sure. No. The Shadow and the Vorlon... Yeah, they captured Delenn and Sheridan, but it's at that point that Lorien is then able to insert himself into this to help get the message across to the two of them. No. To the, those two races. Sure. No, that is absolutely. not what's happening. Are you kidding me? Absolutely that is what is that happening. That is absolutely Lorien is pulling happening. the strings here, pal. <laughs> I am Are telling you. Are you with me? No, I am not. Lorien this is, is pulling Lorien. those strings. The only thing Lorien is he doing... Is. The only thing he's doing here is telepathically broadcasting the conversation that Sheridan is having and the conversation that Delenn is having to everyone else in the fleet. He is not speaking at all. But this is what Lorien wants. And he's finally found the vessel that he is going to be able to have do this. And that is through Sheridan and, you know, because Delenn is right there along with them, he's going to use her as well. It is him that is doing this. I do not agree with you at all. Wow, I... I, he's I'm, not I'm, actively doing anything. He's, he is so careful to be okay. passive in this whole thing. Fine. Actively, passively, whatever. He is the one who is wanting this to end. No. He wants them to move on and let the lesser races, the younger races... I really need to stop using that <laughs> phrase, lesser races. Because it has a different meaning for you and I and we just get giggly and it's wrong. It is Lorien who wants these guys to finally get out of the way and move on. Lorien wants that, but he has never told Sheridan to do that. He's never given Sheridan the idea. He has been waiting for someone to come to that on their own. Which is exactly why when it comes right down to it and he says, this is your moment, you're being asked to make a choice, and I can't help you. He says, I am not going to participate. You have to choose for yourself. He, he, he has been waiting for someone who will make the right choice. Yeah, I, I still feel that he's pulling the strings oh, and man, setting it up. I can't agree with you at all. It I, is I all think, about choice. I think that he is supplanting in, into Sheridan a little bit more to help him make that decision. You're wrong. You're absolutely wrong. Well, this podcast is now over. <laughs> Foreshadow? Or Baccalaureate? No, that's the ending bell. <laughs> uh, okay. So, the uh, basically, the, the Shadow are kind of... Well, we see them in a different light here. Or at least I do. We kind of look at the Shadow as they're scared. They're scared about moving on. So are the Vorlons. Uh, sure, I didn't get that as much from the Vorlon because it didn't really seem like the Vorlon were talking too much. It seemed like... I, I guess I just listened to the Shadow more. Whatever that <laughs> says about me. That <laughs> does seem about right. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, Lorraine's like, yes, I will go uh, with you beyond the rim. Yeah. And they says, then then we won't be alone? The Vorlon are the ones who say that. Oh, they yeah. say that. We won't be alone. So the Vorlon are... And, so, the way I wrote this is, at the end of the day, it doesn't matter how old, ancient and powerful the races are, it seems like we're all scared of the same things. We're all insecure about the same kinds of things. The um, going uh, beyond the rim seems to be the mystical, like, uh, for Tolkien into the west yes or going on to heaven or whatever metaphor you want to use it seems like that is the metaphor for 
the next step in one's existence. Yep, that's right. Uh, to to go beyond, and uh, from what I can guess is they are within you know whatever galaxy they are they are contained within that galaxy. Within the Milky They've Way never yeah. moved beyond the Milky Way. That galaxy. Right. So we've never seen anything. There's been no else. intergalactic travel. Just interstellar travel. Which makes me realize, okay, universe is a big place. There certainly must be other races, races of the caliber of the Vorlon and the Shadow that were within their own galaxies. Yeah, and there is their own Lorian. Yeah, in those as well. Right. Yes, presumably. Am I supposed to infer that? Yes, you are. Okay, I was successful. <laughs> um, I, you know, there's one part in this whole thing that always hits home a lot for me. In Sheridan's conversation with the Vorlock, he says, you're like a couple of parents fighting in front of your children and trying to get them to pick sides. You know, that was something that I lived with as a kid every single day of my life. Mm-hmm. My parents were always fighting in front of us and I was, I had to mediate. I was, I was put in the position by my parents as starting at the age of eight years old that I had to insert myself into their conversations and adjudicate and mediate which one was right. Who had won the conversation and the screaming match and the fist fight. And, and so whenever that, whenever this part comes up, I, it always hits me, I think, a little bit more maybe than, than other people because I know exactly what Sheridan is talking about here. Yeah, I, I don't dig it so much, though, because, I mean, yes, it's got meaning and relevance for humans. Are there parents for the Shadow and the Vorlon? Do they have, you know, creators of, you know, little Vorlons and little <laughs> Shadows? I, I don't know why I don't know why that's important to the metaphor. Well, because that's what um, Sheridan is using as a convincing tool to them to say, "Hey, this is my argument here." But they're telepathic, and they know what he's—they know the mm-hmm. emotion that he is trying to convey. I just think it's stronger to a, a human than okay. to uh, to that. So Maybe. I guess I wish I knew more about the Vorlon and the Shadow because. It seems like a lot of Vorlon and a lot of Shadow get destroyed or killed with these, you know, every thousand year war that creeps up. Are are there more that are created at some point? You know, are there little, you know, shadow hatchlings that, uh, <laughs> you know, crawl up out of the the morass of some tar pit that and feed on a hobbit or two? Yeah. yeah. No, I, I'm, I'm with you. I wish we knew more too. Again, we find ourselves in dire need of a Babylon 5 technical guide. Yes. Maybe a multi-volume set. Um, okay. The uh, I, I kind of found that the ending was a little silly. I, I, I didn't care for the stupid speech that Lorian gives um, at the end. As, you know, the Shadow and Vorlon are all basically like, Okay, well, I, I guess we're going to go. On uh, They all leave, and Lorian's still there. And he's like, telling Sheridan now... Okay, it's all yours. But no one's ever going to know. It's just Sheridan. 
and whoever is, you know, within the sound of his voice on that bridge of the White Star. I, I don't think we need to assume that the telepathic uh, transmission of everything that's going on that White Star has stopped. Okay, but he won't be around. Lorian won't be around to know. No. What, what's going to happen. You're right. Uh, then at the end, the, the che- I found this statement cheesy. Um, now we stop being afraid of our shadows. <laughs> okay. I, come on. I, I, I think I, I have always interpreted that as Sheridan trying to accelerate their emotional state to the point where we can start to laugh about all this now. <laughs> Too soon. <laughs> Too soon. Um, I do. There, there is an interesting uh, thing between Londo and Veer before before that scene with Sheridan and Delenn, uh, where Londo says, "Every time I have been happy, the universe has conspired to do something nasty to me." And um, I always thought about you know for a long time I I would have agreed with Londo, but now I would have to tell Londo you know correlation does not imply causation. <laughs> Fascinating. Okay, anything else? Nope, listener comments. Okay, we'll start with Brainy Smurf. Um, you're fired. Hey, JMS. Ira Bear and Robert Wolf called and they want their narrative device from the DS9 pilot back. I do really like the crucible tactic and the box's signature move of hiding nukes and asteroids. Very Deus Ex Moxina. Deus ex machina, uh, here on many levels. Tonight on Intervention, Interstellar Adversaries. Yes, that's right. Once every 1,000 years, the shadows come out of hiding and begin the 999-year process of pronouncing their name. But tonight, (laughs) we find out what happens when they face off with those crazy Vorlon. Both races see that Lorien is with the box. But they don't care as their hubris is way out of control. <laughs> this episode should have been called the Contrition of Exposition. <laughs> Veer should have ki- <laughs> That's a good title. <laughs> Veer should have killed Londo. That would have been great storytelling. A tragic end to a tragic D bag. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't proofread down this far. <laughs> it, it always gets me to do that. Did you come up with another term? Uh, all right. Um, yeah, what do you think? Should Veer have killed... Uh, you know what's nice is the fact that Londo's like, oh my gosh, kill me. Kill me now. Kill me now. Yeah. Do it. Let's get me out of here. Is, would would Jakar say that his heart is still empty? At that point? Yes, I think so. Yeah. Shikari's so tough. <laughs> so tough on people. Why can't he just love um, a little bit I more? agree with you, though. I love that that moment where Lana's like, Vera, you have to kill me and send the proof to them that I'm dead. So, you know, save the planet. Do it, Vera. But I think for the sake of Vera, we can't let that happen. Hmm. There were some other guards standing off to the side. I feel like they could have got one of them to do it. Well, but I mean, Vera would have not been able to live with that. That guilt, of even even of having ordered it. Well, he wouldn't have ordered it. Oh, you're saying Londo could have ordered it and said, "Kill me, come on!" <laughs> or you know, grabbed the gun and just shot himself, sure. or okay. fallen on his own sword. Okay, get back here. 
there was awkward tension here, jumping from Centauri Prime to Coriolis 6. JMS is mashing two enormous plot pivots that don't feel congruent. I kind of disagree with that. I would agree, disagree too. Yeah, I, I felt that was they did a good job. Yeah. As many fans have pointed out before, it would have been nice to see Veer's seminal moment while omitting the Morden flashback. At least it did not force the 300 slow motion flashbacks that season 6 of Lost provided. <laughs> um, I love these concepts and I hate the execution. When one is watching this episode and some non-geek enters the room, they laugh when the Vorlon, or the insert 10,000 letters here, speak to Lorian, saying in horribly wimpy, whiny voices, Will you come with us? We will not, uh, will we be alone? Vorlon phone home? <laughs> Please don't hate me, Joey. In fact, you completely put me in my place by interacting the classic uh, topos of deliberately, uh, excuse me, desperately attempting to change the inevitable. I stand corrected. I just don't like where I think JMS was going with that illustration. I hate to have to draw a comparison between Kosh telling the box that he is scared and Jesus' tears of blood in the Garden of Gethsemane. I find it a sloppy analogy. I'm not uh, trying to hate here. I simply feel that Jesus is cooler than Kosh. But Joey, I completely accept your previous theory that JMS saw a chance for a better story and it was a mutual agreement for the puppet to leave the show. I will believe that. After season one, the puppet was totally fine with only getting paid for two more episodes instead of 22 and then possibly another 20 or so for the subsequent seasons. We will just say that it was the puppet's choice to only be in the two episodes and receive severance instead of the chance to be a sci-fi icon and be the lead star in the 80 remaining episodes that Babylon 5 was striving to accomplish, because he wanted to go on uh, to be in two episodes of Law and & Order and one episode of the Cosby Mysteries. <laughs> the Cosby Mysteries? Apparently. <laughs> I didn't know that. <laughs> all of these points are yours if you just try to answer a few questions for the children. <laughs> questions for Joey. Since the humans were originally allied with the Vorlon, do you think the box's time with Justin um, was long enough? Long enough is in fair? Yeah, to like truly, you know, tell their side of the story. I think he got the sense of it, yeah. I okay. Think so. Do you think if JMS was not rushed, he might have had the box ally with the shadows for a little while? I don't think so, no. Really? Yeah. You don't think so? Not based on what he's shown in, in the original story arc. There was n never, he's nothing he's ever written has ever implied that we would ally, have allied with the shadows for any degree. I think we saw the humans doing that already, though. Yeah. I, I think it's clear that, that they And that's have. why. He, he would have never allied himself with someone that was an ally of President Clark. Yeah. Yeah, I'm, I, I, I'm going to agree with you on that. How powerful and influential was Patriarch Kosh if, after his death, no other Vorlon followed his lead? Well, no other Vorlon or the overwhelming majority of Vorlon? 
we, we don't know enough about how Vorlon society works. I think it's clear that Kosh was powerful enough that while he was alive, he made their entire society go in one direction. And as soon as he's dead, the society turned and went in a different direction. Which seems like, um... Boy, maybe he should have spent more time amongst the Vorlon, helping them truly Instead understand. Instead of maybe out in with the younger races. Yeah. 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 Maybe okay. he, he. You know what? I would say, given that theory, I'd say he committed the mistake you wanted Jakar to commit. Wait, what? I don't remember. <laughs> Go ahead. Go back to the questions. When Kosh subcontracted Jack the Ripper, he was trying to help the Box and Delenn see through the illusion of dualism, right? Yes. Understanding how to step out of the shadows? Maybe I should have read that all as one. As one question? I guess. Yeah. Um, they, I, there are separate, they okay. separate sentences. I, <laughs> Kosh was trying to prepare them for the uh, this episode and this moment of saying no. So, the Vorlon was trying to prepare the box... To say no to the Vorlon? Yes. Yes? He was getting him ready to fight legends. Kosh is just as much... The Vorlon is just as much of a legend as the Shadow. Or only Kosh was involved in this secret conspiracy to see beyond the light and the dark. So are you suggesting that Kosh wanted to take the Vorlon beyond the rim? Kosh wanted the cycle to stop. I don't know that he planned for them to go beyond the rim necessarily. I don't know if he could see outside the span of his own life or if he had kind of a quantum leap thing going on with his <laughs> <laughs> you know, I could see all time as one. But uh he he definitely wanted the cycle to stop in my opinion. And that's what he was trying to prepare Sheridan for. Hmm. Interesting. I don't know. I I I it would be nice to know actually what Kosh was trying to do. And I don't know that we fully get a proper explanation. We are left to... Interpret a little bit. Yes, yeah. interpret and conjecturize. I think even if we had J. Michael Swarzynski sitting in that chair, that would be his answer. Well, what do you think? Well, I wouldn't have him sitting in that chair. Oh, is that the broken one? No, I don't know. <laughs> uh, TV, uh, sorry, Sci-Fi 10, TV 8. Okay. Well, I hope those questions uh, were answered satisfactorily for you. Um, we're moving on to money bags. He says, Oh boy, do I love it when a really good villain gets it. And they do it right. Londo first finds out about uh, first finds out about Adira, which means that when he kills Morden, he's doing it with full knowledge of what Morden's done. Yeah. Londo says that the poison was of Centauri origin. As if that proves Rifa did it. This seems to be a common sci-fi trope. Oh, it's a Klingon bomb. So the Klingons did it. Is there no interstellar commerce on any of these shows? It's like saying, Oh, the bomb is of Walmart origin. So obviously one of the employees there made it. <laughs> oh well. That's a great thought. <laughs> Like, wouldn't it be so easy just to be like, oh, well, let's see, uh, oh, that's how they make their bombs? Oh, sure, okay, we can make one just like that. We'll frame them. <laughs> I, I really liked that. Okay. That was great. Um, 
Lorian's uh, scenes with Ivanova are pretty good, but he continues with his half-baked, pithy sayings. Sheridan knows that he knows, but does he know that he knows? <laughs> Sheridan knows, but does he know that he knows? Whoa, man, that's like heavy. But like, does Sheridan know that we know that he knows? And if he knows that we know, he needs to know that he knows. Sorry, I passed out briefly. Not sure if you guys were fans uh, of the show Friends, but there's a hilarious episode built around this way of talking. Anyway, for once, Londo really doesn't have a choice. Of course, it's the choices he's made that got him to the point of not being able to choose anything, but the choice that he chooses to choose... Uh, sorry, I got carried away again. <laughs> anyway, Londo really doesn't have a choice in this episode. His actions are actually pretty heroic, even though he's cleaning up his own messes. And he's willing to sacrifice himself for Centauri Prime. Rifa would have just wet his pants in the same situation. Of course, Londo's dead either way, but it's still a good character moment. I just wish Veer would have weighed wave to Morden before he died. <laughs> um, you know, I uh, this thought here, I, I think the redemption of Londo be, really would become complete if he does either kill himself or have himself killed in that moment to save all of Centauri. Interesting. I think that's getting off too easy. You think so? Yeah. I don't know. I, it feels like he's he's clearly on the path at this point back to where he needs to be. And this is a, a, a grand show to be able to say, T take me. I, let Kill me right now and save the rest of my people. Can you try and remember to bring this up again when we do the series wrap-up? Because I'd like to ask you at the end of Season 5 if you still believe it. No, I refuse to do that. <laughs> Fair enough. We need an intern to... Uh, uh, Remember take that these kind things of thing? down. <laughs> oh, intern, please note that for the series wrap-up, please. Yes, sir. <laughs> really? That's your errand? <laughs> I'd say it's more like this. <laughs> okay. okay. I'm not going to make fun of Aaron. That's your job. I think Aaron's a great human being. And you, you started it. And you are too mean to him. I was thinking of some other you know, young, fresh intern who's straight out oh, of so college. now you're firing the intern. No, we're just Re getting, replacing we're, him. We're getting more. Oh, I see. <laughs> it's clear we need to offer the intern a real job or else he's going to move on to another podcast. Okay. Um, as much as I love Londo, it would have been hilarious if the Vorlons had incinerated him from orbit, left the rest of the planet untouched, and then left. <laughs> now, Let's get back to John Nukemal Sheridan. There's a key line I missed every time I watched this episode. Lorraine says that Sheridan, quote, hoped that they, the Shadows and the Vorlons, could be provoked into doing this, having a powwow, close quote. It makes the episode a lot more tolerable to know that this was part of Sheridan's plot from the beginning. Of course, this still doesn't explain why the Shadows and the Vorlons don't just go into hibernation for another thousand years and start the cycle again with a new batch of races. I suppose this is because Lorien is there to convince them to leave. But it's still a little unsatisfying to have everyone just pack their bags and leave. Still, 
This is one of the few episodes I've found better on rewatch. TV 8, Sci-Fi 9. Okay. All right, Joey, what do you think for science fiction? 12. <laughs> Can I do that? No. <laughs> I give this a 10. This is this is the culmination. This is the... Uh, I'm trying to remember the, the, the correct term. When you have a story and you plot it... Penultimate? No. Not penultimate, not ultimate. I mean, you can call it... it is the, but this is the uh, climax. That's Apex. The this is the climax of the story. Apex. Climax. <laughs> we should move on before I start making jokes. <laughs> um, everything from here to the end of the series is really Dana It's a letdown. Yeah. Well, I wouldn't say a letdown. It's Dana Moi. It's... It's ra- Don't bring your French in here. <laughs> it's not my French. <laughs> you, you speak the, the language of freedom, sir, if you're going to continue in this household. Denouement. <laughs> <laughs> I give it a 10. Pete, you give it a 10. Uh, I wrote down a 9, um, and I'm hard-pressed to think why I can't give it a 10. Um, so I guess for that reason... Um, you know, they wrap up the whole Morden thing. We get, you know, the, the comeuppance there. He's finally gone. You know, the horrible evil villain of, yeah. of so long. Um, we have the, the Shadow and the Vorlon come to a head. That space scene is crazy. Awesome. It's awesome. What would have been nice is if we could have got a little better show of... The first ones? No, not the first oh, ones. Okay. Because when the first one showed up, it's like, oh, what? Holy cow! Um, we have, if we could see the other, like the the younger racer races ships next to the first ones. Oh, okay. We'll see more contrast between like size and yeah, because we look at the White Star Fleet and we think, okay, wow, that's pretty cool ship. That's pretty cool, and then we compare it to like all of these massive things and see just this itty bitty people yeah. <laughs> group down there who are like you know looking at them you know waggling their fingers shame on you first ones you guys need to get out of here you know, shoot you you people go away you know just to see the almost near futility of what these younger races are trying to do with these giants in the playground yeah so to speak i would have loved it so much more if they could have given a little bit more um I've been rough on the series, so I, I actually feel like, I guess, I can I can give this a 10. Okay. I'm, I'm going to be comfortable with it. For television, I'm going to give this an 8. I think that there hmm. is a lot of really good stuff in here. Uh, again, you know, it, a lot of the show is space battles. Well, you and I, and the science fiction fans, are all going to be like, yes, great space battle. And probably most people could have done with a little less space battle. And I also, I you know... I giggled so much at the idea of calling this episode, what was it, the con- the confession or the, uh, sorry. Something of exposition. Uh, okay, the contrition. Contrition of exposition, yes. Because it, it's, it's very exposition heavy. But I, th- I, think, that, I think that's okay, but it, you know, it's going to take a little bit of a knock for me. Uh, I give it a bit more of a knock. I originally wrote a 7, but I actually oh, wow. am giving this a 6. You're coming all the way down to a 6. Okay. Yeah, and, and it's because of the whole... We're wrapping up so much of, you know, what is this heavy arc. 
I mean, obviously, we're not finishing everything, mm-hmm. but we are wrapping up the major arc of this, which is the Shadow, the Vorlon, and the Younger Races. And I think too much can get lost in that wrap-up if you haven't been along for the ride. Okay. And... I can appreciate that. Yeah, I... Yeah, six. Okay. Uh, what about a uh, P5 rating? P5 rating is 9.3. Moving on to our next episode, apostrophes. <laughs> Epiphanes. <laughs> oh, epiphanies. The, right. sh- the shadow war is over, but there's still plenty of work to do. I uh, was quoting from the movie Hook. It's me. I think I've just had an apostrophe. I don't think I've seen that one. Uh, it's the uh, one with... Uh, I get that it's Captain Hook, because mm-hmm. you said Smee and Hook. It's uh, Robin Williams and uh, Dustin Hoffman. It's actually not a bad uh, uh, Peter Pan story. Okay. It's pretty good. If you ha- Put it on your family's uh, uh, movie night list. Okay. I, I think that you guys will not be disappointed with it. All right. We'll do that. Okay. Uh, let's uh, do... Uh, uh, what would you give rating for science fiction? <laughs> You're done already, huh? Oh, you were going to read something. What are you going to read? The thing about looking at any creative work is that you always see it through contemporary eyes, and the focal distance changes with time. A story looks one way when first told, and quite another when told much later. In preparing to write the introductions and essays for these volumes, I reread the scripts and rewatch the episodes, and there's something vaguely chilling about these stories set in the current political climate. Substitute Iraq or Iran for Babylon 5. Substitute Fox News for ISN. Substitute a government's desire to instill its population with a sense of crisis that can only be resolved through preemptive strike against the enemy and, well, for pretty much the same thing, and suddenly the parallels become clear. If I were writing this story now with absolutely no changes, I would be accused of taking a political stand. Since they were written 10 years ago almost to the day, the worst charge that can be leveled is unintended prophecy. The truth of it, however, is simpler still. As the Vorlons and Shadows previously demonstrated, history is cyclical. Today, if you question the government, you are considered to be on the side of terrorists. Fifty years ago, if you questioned the government, you were considered to be on the side of the communists. Two hundred years from now, the same action means you're on the side of the aliens. In times of stress, struggle, and shifts of power, we designate part of us as part of them, and go to war against ourselves in the proposed hope of finding clarity in the redefinition that follows, but in most cases finding instead only pain. Then in a 50 or 100 years, we do the whole damn thing all over again. The Drowsy Wars don't look quite so silly now, do they? Yes. (laughs) Which is my answer too, actually. Yes, they still do look silly, but it's a good silly. It's fun silly. But yeah, I mean, it's a good point, you know, we, we... it's amazing the the parallels that you can draw here. Uh, yeah, okay. Okay. I, I, I don't know that I would spend any amount of time trying to draw parallels to real life from a fantasy or science fiction work, even if that was the intended purpose for that work. Okay. So if an author was sitting down to... You know, much like uh, uh, who did uh, Fahrenheit? Uh, Ray Bradbury. You know, I, I think he was doing that specifically at the time period because he was commenting on that time period. Yes. 
Um, I, I even if I were to sit down, I wouldn't, you know, and watch some piece of work that uh, somebody was putting together. You're not into social commentary. I, I, I don't think that I am. Okay. And I don't think that I would want to spend or waste my time trying to do that. So, I guess I'm the wrong audience for <laughs> several people out there, which I guess I'm okay with. Um, Alright, we have Spatial Fireworks. Yeah. I realize I'm, there's a way that you could make them appear to be like fireworks, but it seems odd that you would be able to have what we know as fireworks out in space because you'd need some sort of oxygen for the thing to burn. Well, but these are fireworks as we know them. Yeah, they, they are... There's something else going on. There. It's different. It was just seemed weird that we were seeing that. That's all I'm saying. Okay. Um, and the president... Uh, President Clark wants to shut down Babylon 5. He's ready to move. He is... Well, he's probably pretty pissed about the fact that the Shadow are gone. Yeah. And there goes all his support. <laughs> all he's going to really have left are Psychor. And the military. True. Um, so Psychor is now going to help him do that. And uh, basically they set up an embargo. Babylon 5 becomes Cuba. Well, no. Uh, the embargo is set up by the military and the Night Watch. Yeah, okay. Whatever. It, okay. They are uh, still Cuba. Nobody yeah. gets to go there. I'm Anybody who does yes. gets arrested. Yep. You can't trade with them. Um, it's no-no land. For you know, lack of a better political term. So, after saying you wouldn't take spend any energy... Drawing parallels to real life. You're spending energy drawing a parallel to real life. I didn't spend any amount of energy coming up with that one. That was incredibly easy. Um, okay. The, a, a regent for the Centauri is selected. Yeah. And it ends up being the... Uh, <laughs> the silly minister? Yes. <laughs> Pastels! Oh, so dumb. That is such a dumb scene. He, he, you know, he talks in the script book about how he's trying to lighten it up because Into the Fire was so incredibly heavy. He's trying to throw some lighter stuff. Yes, out there. but I, it makes me think of Centauri as nothing but idiots. That's really all I'm left to think about the Centauri. Really? The only good Centauri I've really ever seen is Veer. Everyone else is nothing but a scared sheep who just does whatever they're told. Uh, or someone who is a scheming... Um, Manipulator. Yeah, yeah. Who is just after their own interests. And I... I and then we got pastels. <laughs> <laughs> they picked oh. someone they knew they could manipulate. Um, okay, so... Garibaldi gets... Wait, wait, don't go that far yet. Jakar is in uh, MedLab. Talking to the doctor about his eye, mm. and he he makes what I think is a great morbid joke when he's like, "You know, I think it was a tool that looked like this. I only saw it end on. You understand?" <laughs> but uh, you know, we we get to hear that uh, Doctor Franklin is going to try and find a prosthetic eye mm -hmm. to uh, serve as an implant for his Jakar, and he may gain his vision back. Yes, yeah, not a perfect vision. Yeah. But still a vision nonetheless. And he is incredibly excited about that. And he delivers a great line when, when Franklin asks him, 
you know, hey, I heard your people tried to put you in power and you refused. Why? Uh, I really like this line by Jakar. I have seen what power does, and I have seen what power costs. The one is never equal to the other. Hmm. That saddens me. It really does sadden me to think that the one person who is primed and ready to be the leader that Narn needs doesn't step up and do it. Okay. I I think he's shirking his duties. I think he's just trying to abdicate and say, no, no. Get away. Interesting. Okay. Don't care for it. Uh, Garibaldi gets a psychedelic message. Yeah, he's kind of emo in this scene, too. He's drawing frowny faces in the steam on the bathroom <laughs> <laughs> How emo can you get? <laughs> yeah, and he decides that he's going to quit security. Yep, he's out. And I just, I thought, you know, why is everyone giving him such a hard time about this? It's been a rough few years. Yeah. He's got the right to decide to move on. He does. But, you Everybody's know, giving him such a hard time about it. I don't know that I would say they're giving him a hard time. I don't kind know. of felt like they were. I, I would say that... They were a little too pushy. If I had had a traumatic event like that in my life, and I reacted the way Garibaldi appears to be, which is just, like I said, going all emo, and I said, you know what, I'm going to quit my job, and I, I would hope that you would have the friendship and concern for me to pull me aside and say, you might want to think twice about this, Joey. No, I would sit back and enjoy that you, ride. You would giggle. <laughs> like, this is going to be a train wreck. C- can, I, can I film the quit? <laughs> <laughs> I, I don't know. It, it, uh, well, obviously, there's something wrong with Garibaldi. Yeah. And uh, nobody else can really see it. And nobody else is in a position to really help him. Uh, because that's the way Straczynski's written it. There's no way that we can help this man. Yeah. At all. It, it sucks. It's... Uh, it's the hardest part of the last few years of Babylon 5 is watching what happens to the character of Garibaldi. Uh, Bester is back, and Londo is back. Yep. All on Babylon 5. So I, we're getting I love the old team. with Zach right there, by the way. <laughs> um, yeah, yeah, okay, sure. I, it was all right. I, I liked it. I didn't care for the scene, especially the way that it ends. Okay, let me read you something about that, because I knew that was going to come up. <sighs> yeah, by, by the way... If you'd like to, to read this, you could probably read it from over there. <laughs> Stupid. <laughs> For whatever strange reason, a number of folks in the Babylon 5 production crew were huge Elvis Presley fans. They kept sneaking subtle references to Elvis into our CGI shots, and they were even wont to do the occasional Elvis impersonation on stage. So when Zack gets one surprise visitor after another, coming through the customs area, and he declares that he wants to get the heck out before the second coming walks through the door, it was suggested to me that we have three Elvis impersonators come through in his wake. It was an interesting image, to be sure, but an odd choice. So I asked why, and what the connection is to Zack's line here. Well, I was told, Zack talks about the second coming, so what could be better than having the three kings appear? Uh. <laughs> That's not the good part, though. I didn't think there was a way to make it worse. <laughs> And you no, just did. It gets, it gets even better. <laughs> uh, he says, several, So several of our crew members finally got to live their dream of being Elvis on television. By the way, the first of the Elvi to come through is assistant art director and prop master 
Mark Walters. I heard unofficially that the costume he's wearing here was one that he personally already owned and used. Whether or not this is true, I have not determined or inquired after. On the theory, there are just some things you don't want to know. <laughs> and people give us a hard time. <laughs> okay, well, I, I guess maybe this is... I should be learning a lesson about this. Which is... People right, like Elvis. Let, let the Fruit Loops out there be their Fruit Loops because people look at me and you... And the things that we do, and I guarantee you they walk away and say, wow, he's got a Star Trek podcast. And that's all they hear. They don't hear, oh, there's a podcast about discussing moral ideas and, you know, the, the difficulties that uh, are on the human race and how they're portrayed through this media. No, they would just hear Star, Star Trek, Trek podcast. podcast. <laughs> and boil it right down to that. So maybe I should be learning something from this, but Fruit Loops are Fruit Loops and I don't care. Um, okay, um, let's talk about Jakar and Londo for a second, okay. because we have a very awkward scene, Yeah. Uh, where Jakar and Londo meet as free men, and Jakar threatens him. Yeah. Basically he says, uh, look, our, our peoples are free, let's, uh, let's never meet Again. Let's hope we never recognize each other. What do they say? Not recognize, but uh, notice. Let's hope we never notice each other again. Yeah, because it's basically it's going to be the last time you're alive, <laughs> if that's the case. Which I find that hard... I find that difficult. To reconcile with what, with what we've seen in Jakar. Jakar, yeah. Yeah. It's sort of like, okay, he's realized, you know, he needs the, the, the you know, the... The belt of forgiveness that Jakar has strapped upon himself, you know, being able to rise up and be the better person. Nope, he's right back to hating. Yep, hating is a-okay again. Yeah, it's an anomaly. Uh, I, I, I think it must have been, I've always just figured, this must be a scene that JMS had in his mind when he was first picturing Babylon 5. And he just continued to write it even though the story had gone beyond where he thought it would be mm. at this point. Yeah, well, it was a mistake. Yeah, I agree. I agree. It doesn't work. It's it's a it's an absolute anomaly, and in coming episodes, we'll see that Jakar has continued the change that happened in him. Yeah. Um. All right. So nobody comes to visit Lita, and she's sad. Well, let me ask you about that because I get so frustrated every time she talks. Every time this conversation happens, because. This is my idea of a perfect world. No one comes to bother me unless they need my help with something. When they do, they are ready to take my advice, I tell them what to do, and then they go away and stop bothering me again. <laughs> I'm not sure if you're aware of this or not, um, but you aren't normal. <laughs> okay. When human beings look around and say, what's normal? They don't look at you as though that is the definition of normal. I don't mean that to insult you. No, no. Just by way of informing so you. So you would agree with Lita here? I guess that's what I wanted to ask. Is I think that there are some people that will get tired of being used. And they crave some sort of emotional attachment to people. But she doesn't go out of her way to 
you know, well, seek you ha- others out. Yes, you have to realize that she was held to be a virtual prisoner by Olkesh. And, you know, it just... that that's, that's what she was. And she wasn't allowed to have friends. She True. wasn't allowed to have things. She was segregated away from everybody else. And on top of that, she's a psychic. They're, they seem to be a little bit of a pariah amongst the, the human population where it's like, oh, you're, oh, you're a psychic? Uh, are you reading me right now? Are you manipulating me? Okay. And so I, I'm betting that it's got to be difficult for her to be able to walk into you know, a party somewhere. Go down to the Zocalo and have <laughs> dinner with somebody. <laughs> yeah. okay. um, so uh, anyway, it, it, she feels sad. But then she does, like, the typical thing that women do, which is, you know, when someone actually serves genuine interest, as Zach does, he's like, hey, you know what, I'll come by later, I'll help you unpack these boxes, and I'll even bring pizza. And she's like, uh, okay, great, <laughs> looks at him as though he's somehow the one that, you know, has uh, psoriasis all over his face or something like that. And she's, you know, he's just suggested the worst thing possible, which is him rubbing his face all over her pillows. <laughs> you know, I, 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 I just... like that you managed to slip, slip both pariah and psoriasis <laughs> in the same conversation here. <laughs> That's a form of alliteration, right? If it all starts with the letter P, <laughs> even though it doesn't sound like it is. Uh, it could be. I don't know. I don't think it is. Anyway, I was just frustrated that by that because it's a double standard. Someone's finally, you know, showing a little yeah. bit of friendship and interest, and she's like, "No, no, that's weird, <laughs> creep. Oh, you're a weirdo." So Bester wants to go to Zahadum and mm-hmm. see if there's technology there that can be used to help get his lover out of the situation she's in. And through this whole conversation, apparently, Lita is blocking Bester, even though she's only a P5, and then she actually like, repels him yeah. psychically back into his own head. Pushes him out. Yeah, that was awesome. Love that scene. Yes, I, I was pleased by that as well. Uh, and and uh, she just does it, what seems to be so incredibly casually. Casual for her, yeah. Yeah. And uh, I, I like the way that scene ends is, you know, everybody's talking and Bester says, well, is there a consensus? I love Sheridan's answer. No. But we'll go anyway. Because I'm in charge here. <laughs> what I say goes. Um, um, okay, so at what point uh, Bester threatens Lita? Right? I've got that written down. What? How did he threaten her? Threaten? Yeah, he threatens her. Oh, yeah, he threatens her like, uh, oh, you know, you're going to... We're going to bring the core back to, to get you or something like that. The core is mother, the core is father. Yeah, he, he was telling her, what he said to her was, you have a moral obligation to all telepaths to let us study you. I don't know that he threatened her necessarily. Mm, but, I felt like it was threatening. And, and her, you know, because you remember, core is mother, core is father, and her response is great. Well, then I'm an orphan. <laughs> <laughs> um, okay, so why not go back to Zahadun? Why not? Well, because there are security systems left behind, and there are traps, and, and can't be that great of security systems because we had a white star just fly right down to the core of the planet and blow up two big nukes. Well, but that was a white star that was explicitly signaled to be allowed in by Anna Sheridan. 
she told him that she would get him there mm-hmm. and, and make sure that he had safe passage the whole way there. I don't know. It kind of seems like the shadow ships aren't there anymore. I, I just don't buy that you know they couldn't get in there and, and start to do their damage. Okay. I don't know. Um, but let's see here. Babylon 5 stops Psychor from attacking the Earth uh, Alliance ships. Yep. And uh, the Earth Alliance ships are like, holy crap, what do you get? You helped us? You're supposed to be evil. And uh, kind of helps, uh, yeah, I mean, it ruins the plan of uh, President Clark. Yep. Um, and uh, so the, the Shadow Planet explodes. Um, let's see here. Uh, all of the other races that had been helping out the Shadow are taken off. Yeah. Why they know to take off, I'm assuming, is because they recognize that the planet's about to go boom. Yes. And we come to find out that it is because... <laughs> Lita. Lita <laughs> triggered it. Yeah. And apparently she did it from a really, really long distance. Yeah, I. It kind of was suggested by Sheridan that she did it Back on Babylon 5. No, he said when... Well, I, I get that she... I always interpret it as once they hit hyperspace, hyperspace. she was able to do it. Yep. Okay. Um, why... Why does Sheridan get so pissed at Lita? He seems to come out of nowhere. I agree. And it's it just... Kind of it does weird. not seem to make sense to the character of Sheridan. More to the point, he orders her around like she's a member of his crew, and she's not. Yeah. He treats her like she is another member of his command staff that he can... I mean, if Ivanova had done this, certainly, dress her down. She made a command decision without you. Yeah, because he kind of reminds... She is a free agent. He kind of reminds me a bit of old Kesh, wanting to try and push her around to do his bidding. He didn't want that to happen, um, or maybe he did... But he wanted to be the one that made the decision yes. about it, yeah. not her, because she couldn't be trusted to I, do it. I, I honestly think it, it, the, the weird thing is not that he dresses her down. It's that the dressing down he gives her is what one would expect from a military commander to a military subordinate. He treats her as though she's part of the military chain of command, but she's clearly not. Yeah. We all know that. Yeah. And I don't know why Sheridan doesn't know that. Yeah. Um, I got a note down here that... Uh, Bester is alone, and Zack can't act tough. The scene where he's supposed to be acting like a tough guy, I just... It doesn't really I jive with scene. me, I, I guess. Okay. Um, oh, and lastly, the regent has a little friend. Yes. And it'd be, I look forward to finding out how it is that these guys got there. And how they got in place. We don't know. We'll never know? No. All right, well, we just made John mad again. I mean... <laughs> yeah, that doesn't help. <laughs> <laughs> oh, two bells. Yeah, that definitely means something different now. Um, no, I was just ringing it one more time. He, he has declared me his nemesis. This was not my choice. <laughs> I, I have to act in the role that I have been put. <laughs> Okay, that's all I have to talk about. Listener comments. All right, we're going money bags first, and he says, 
Oh boy, here we go. Garibaldi resigns. Ugh. Why couldn't they have had the stones to have Garibaldi have a legitimate beef with Sheridan? Instead of using trippy screensavers to manipulate him. That would have made for a much better story in my opinion. I'll be complaining or er, commenting on this quite a bit. Plus one for Bester, but this isn't one of his better stories. TV6, Sci-Fi 6. I disagree. I, there's a reason that they're having this be the way that Garibaldi goes out. It's not to get Garibaldi out. It's to set up the next big arc of the story. Right. Um, I, I think uh, the the Bester stuff, I think we're supposed to feel bad for him kind of there at the end. Like, you know, he's all alone and he doesn't really have anybody. I don't feel bad for Bester. I don't either. And I don't think we are necessarily supposed to. We're supposed I, to see we're supposed to see that Bester has feelings, but we're not necessarily supposed to Maybe identify. if he had sung the song Feelings. <laughs> feelings. Nothing yeah, you have to do it with the Russian accent though. Feelings. <laughs> okay, um Rainy Smurf. First of all, the logo for Psychor is hilarious. With the three little stick figures holding hands. It is about as much of a misnomer as if Al-Qaeda decided to use Mickey Mouse giving a peace sign. That's not Psychor. That's not Psychor. That, the three characters holding hands. Who is it then? That is Earth Government World Headquarters. Earth Dome Headquarters. Huh. So Psychor has an office there, but so, to, so did the Senate... Okay, well, I think it, it still fits the okay. analogy here. We'll just change that to uh, wherever you heard Psychor, just replace EarthGov. <laughs> All right. Does our favorite little gay sunflower regent have a name? He is so funny. And now Pete can finally say, while engaging a dramatically slow, outstretched hand with a palm facing the sky, I'm thinking pastels. <laughs> Which would now be the second time I've done that tonight. Um, <laughs> best delivery of the word pastels ever. Have you dudes watched the Venture Brothers? Jacquard's phantom limb syndrome reminded me of the arch-villain uh, arch character Phantom Limb with invisible arms and legs. <laughs> you, dudes are, you dudes also strongly, strongly... Remind me of two characters on the show. Do you know whom they are? I, I'm aware of the show Venture Brothers, but I've never actually watched an episode. I've never heard of them the, at all. It's a it's an art. Uh, the, it's a cartoon. The artwork is very reminiscent of the old uh, Speed Racer cartoon. Oh, okay. <laughs> all right. So so early episode. anime kind of thing. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Sci-Fi 9 TV 6. Okay. Okay, good. You know, I'm not finding any name for that minister here. Uh, it just says minister. Oh. In the script book here. Oh, well. He's still great. We'll call him Minister Pastel. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Pete, science fiction rating. I give this an 8. I really enjoyed the science fiction that was in this, um, regardless of the stupid Elvises. Okay. Uh, I'm only going to give it a seven. I, I, I think that you 
you and I always come out, you always come a little higher than I do on the telepathic aspect of science fiction. I don't give it quite as strong of a rating as you do in general. Okay. Telepaths are awesome. Telepaths are awesome. Not going to deny that. Um, Slightly less awesome than you believe them to be as all. <laughs> well, I... I'd say one out of ten less awesome. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Thank you for clarifying that. For television, I'm going to give this a five. This was some... I, I think I really kind of in some places should be giving this a four because it's just subpar stuff. Uh, but a uh, five. Middle of the road. I give it a five as well. The P5 rating is an 8.43. Moving on to our next episode, The Illusion of Truth. An ISN reporter visits the station in the ongoing propaganda war against Babylon 5. This episode was frustrating <laughs> to watch. Because of what happens? Yes. Yeah. How stupid do you have to believe to be to believe? To let this guy in? Yes. Yeah, I'm with you 100%. You should have taken them hostage... Or captive and said, okay, yeah, you're done. Goodbye. And just uh, be done with them. So th- there's a reason that he wrote this episode. And, and he's frustrating the viewers intentionally here. Oh. <laughs> Wonderful. He says, It serves a purpose in that it allows us to see how footage shot one way can be used to create an image wildly at odds with what we as omniscient viewers present at the time of filming, filming, knew to be true. To a certain degree, it's a function of editing, choosing words or phrases out of context Mm -hmm. to create a different effect. Often it's so subtle that we don't know it's being done. In other cases, the the conversation can even be framed in a whole different way in the post-production process. At one point in the broadcast version of the interview, we show the reporter sitting in an entirely different set Asking questions that were never asked in the real interview. We even modulate the audio so that it won't quite fit the sound of the rest of the room. Despite this, one of the more startling startling revelations for me in this regard is that in the years since this episode was aired, very few people that I have talked to have noticed that bit of intercutting. Really? Which is, of course, exactly why and how people get away with this. And may also have something to do with the fact that this episode has become required viewing in media and journalism classes at several major inter- universities. Really? Yeah. In fact, uh, I guess it kind of would work. You, this could be cut alone and shown in that regard. Just that piece of yeah. This yeah, just this episode alone I think could I think you could show that and it would get the point across. Yeah. So I'm curious, are they showing it to say, okay guys, look, this is how you need to do this so that you can manipulate your audience. (laughs) I don't know what message they're sending. Hopefully they're saying, here's what not to do. (laughs) Uh, But it's it's interesting. I know that uh, at one point, I want to say it was Stanford was using as part of their their, uh, journalism courses a book that Straczynski wrote called Script Writing as the textbook. For one of the journalism courses, hmm. you know they they bring up this uh, this thought of, and, and I I really don't care to even discuss most of what happens in here. I, I wrote notes down, and we we can if we want to, but for the majority of this, I was just so pissed off at you know how they just happily seem to stick their foot right into that bear trap. Yep, uh, it's funny we both reach for that same metaphor. Huh. <laughs> um, anyway, they they talk about the objective journalist 
whether or not he exists. And how that's really, you know, that oh, you know, that is just a myth. And they compare it to something else. I can't remember what the, the comparison Did you say like was. the Tooth Fairy or something like that? <laughs> honest Politician. Honest Politician, that's what it was. Sorry, Tooth Fairy and Honest Politician. I get those confused a lot. <laughs> hey, you were trying to become a politician. <laughs> right. Right. <laughs> I'm not making any kind of commentary. So, the... This idea of an objective journalist or an honest politician, which, by the way, I, I actually believe that we can have an honest politician. Uh, it, it would be rare, and I don't think that that person would be in office very long. I don't even think they'd win. That's I why don't. I don't. That's why. That's why I think it's. While I laugh at it, I think it's a fair thing to say it's a misnomer because I don't think an honest person in today's political climate could actually. Win office. Yeah. And um, until you've taken office, I wouldn't say you're a politician. Yeah. Um, so this idea of the objective journalist is this one who can listen to all of the, the facts or gather all of the information that he can, that he or she can, and then present what information they have received. And the, in the episode, the, it's talked about how no, 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 everybody carries their own bias, and they are going to present that in along with their story. Yeah. But, you know, there are others of us around, Captain Sheridan, who want to help tell this, this story because, you know, the people need to hear, even though, you know, there's going to be obvious skewing of what's going on, there's still going to be some truth that can be put out there. I mean, that should have been... Right then and there, you should know, get away from this guy. But the idea of the objective objective journalist, is it is it false? Is it not possible to have? Purely objective? I don't think so. I don't think you can have pure objective uh, objectivity. You can strive for it, and you can get close to it. Why do you think that is? Because everything you hear and everything that, everything that, all the information you collect is all going to pass through the filter of your own experiences. I don't think you can be truly objective as a human being. We, we can't step outside of our, our own filters long enough, consistently enough, to know. remain com- completely objective. It seems like all we really need to do is remove the emotion. It seems like... I think about a sports reporter, and there's really not a ton of bias that's going to come through. I mean, obviously, yeah, KSL is going to report things, you know, skewed towards BYU. Sure. ABC4 is going to report things skewed towards the University of Utah, which, by the way, those are the two big schools that, you know, have their rivalry. rivalry. Yeah, Yeah, it's a big, big kind of deal. But there is... That other station, CBS, who just reports, I believe what that is. you can have certain stories that you're able to report objectively, but I don't think that you can take every single story you ever write and not have it. In, not have you don't it. think that there is a person somewhere who can objectively sit down and say, okay. It's my, I've been given the responsibility of this story by my news director. I'm the one who needs to go out here and report on this right now. 
let, let's say that you're that person. You don't think that you can do an objective job on that? I like like I'm like I tried to say. I think there are things that we can be objective about, but I also think for every single person in the world, there is going to be that one thing that is so deeply part of your personality, your persona, that you don't even realize you're being subjective about it. There's going to be things that are so ingrained in us that we, we, we're not even aware that we're judging. We think we're being objective, but because of experiences and emotions and all the things that we create as mental filters, you're, you're just not even going to be conscious of yeah. what you're doing. Okay, I get that we as humans have our biases, but let's pretend like we're in a little more of a perfect world. Don't you think that the news director who's Hopef in charge of Hopefully there choosing. are enough people that are involved in the story that everybody can say, oh, you know what, this is kind of biased. Can you, can you adjust this? Do we need to bring in another reporter to help you on this so that he can help you see where you're being biased? I don't know that that happens. Or he know. chooses one who's like, okay, I know Bob over here is going to get pretty worked up over this, you know, Susan Powell case. But I know you, Joey, you can remain objective through this entire thing. And if you have a great news director, I think that's possible. I do think it's possible to do that. But so you are willing to admit that you think that we can have the myth of the objectivist journal. Wow. <laughs> Objective <laughs> journalist. I am so drunk right now. <laughs> I am drunk so right now. <laughs> that we can have that thing that I'm arguing about actually exist. Uh, so, the, the the question that I'm answering and the question that you're asking, I think, are slightly different. Okay? I know. It's because you refuse to answer the question. The, the question that you're asking is, can we have the journal be objective? I think is what you're trying to say. The journal? No, I'm talking about the journal. I'm talking about the person. The person can never be completely objective on every single topic ever. No. There's no one in the world, I don't believe, that can do that. If the news director is careful in choosing how he assigns stories, the entire corpus that that group yes, puts but, out will be objective. But he then helps to maintain the objectiveness. No, all he's doing is he's avoiding putting that person in a situation where they will Thus, become Thus they subjective. retain their objective. No, they are subjective. And, no, whether, because they're not they're, the ones reporting on the thing that they would have been subjective about. They stay away from that particular area, and thus they remain pure and clean of their emotions I, in I, that particular I story. I can't agree with the way you're saying that. I, I can't see how you can see it any other way. If you because have the person bias, hasn't become objective. Whether yes, you but talk not, about the bias or not. But they're not the one who's reporting whether it. Whether you're talking about the bias or not, you're not objective. I think you're you biased bias. about this conversation <laughs> right now. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Do you see what I'm trying to say? No, because I refuse it, it, to believe anything that you have to say. Even if you're not reporting on it, you're still biased. You're not objective about that topic. Yes, but you're not the journalist at that point. You're, you're just a journalist. That's no, your job. No, you are the journalist only when you are the one reporting oh, on the okay. story. Well, I, I Otherwise, not... you are the person who is just receiving the story. I, I'm a computer programmer whether I'm the guy writing the code or not. I'm still a computer programmer. And, whether I, and if I think you're writing the wrong code... 
my bias is applied there. No, I am not an objective is, programmer. Your bias plays no part in what is what that programmer is doing there at his station. No, it doesn't. But it plays a part in me. I am not objective about that code that's being written. Yes, but that is you as the person, you as the user who would receive no, that. No, me as a programmer. No, you are not the one programming it. You can't be the one who who takes that. <laughs> you can't be. Okay. I, I, well, it's clear for our listeners. Let's be clear: neither Joey or I are are particularly objective about well this any topic. anything really, but specifically this topic. <laughs> I I tend to believe that, that I think that we can have the objective. Journalist. I think we can have objective journalists if you say you're not a journalist when you're not writing the article. But I don't think you can say you're not a journalist when you're not writing the article. You're always a journalist. And yeah. you're not objective about it, even when you're reading it. You're I, I feel a like I feel like subjective. you are taking off a different hat at that point. You're the consumer hat when you're reading mm. it. Okay. Not the guy who who wrote it. Um, like I said, I really didn't care for much of what happens in this episode, per se. So there wasn't anything specific I wanted to talk about. There, there, so if you, if you have it, yeah, let, let, let's have you bring it up now. Uh, he says we have the scene. Showing the naming of names by an individual confessing his crimes on screen. The names they ref- the names he cites refer to Dalton Trumbo, Zero Mostel, and Paul Jericho, all of whom were called before the House Un American Activities Committee and asked to name the names of other potential communists, who would, in turn, be similarly prosecuted. They did not name names. Larry Parks did. So the names that he uses there are actually call outs to well-known individuals who actually suffered under this kind of regime. I thought hmm. that was interesting. He says it was... Wait, but he made them name names, though. Oh, no, no, the The guy who... Larry Parks. Yeah, he... Yeah. Okay. Yeah, which was clear that they had been, like, manipulating yes. that, that person. Yeah. You know, he... Even, they had... even, like, in the scene, you, you're <laughs> showing the people... Who are standing there to make sure he says the right thing. How did they not film that better? <laughs> uh, anyway, he, uh, Straczynski says, It was a very different time then, than it is today. A time when people who differed with the positions of government were considered either morally confused or tacitly aiding and abetting the enemy. When careers could be destroyed by speaking out. Politicians used fear to gain power beyond their due. And people were prosecuted on the basis of secret ev- evidence. And disagreement became synonymous with unpatriotic. Thank goodness that sort of thing doesn't happen anymore. <laughs> well, I think it's clear that we've rid the world of that. <laughs> uh, I, I, I don't have any other thoughts. Um, you're driving this bus. Uh, th- there's just one other thing I want to point out is we see a new flashback. Garibaldi has a new flashback. As he's sitting there, he's running mm, his recovery right. service, he's holding the card, and he hears the voice telling him you work for no one but us, over and over again, driving that into his head. So, uh, you know, that is a piece of information that we haven't previously had about what happened to him while he was gone. Right, right. Listen to comments. Okay. Uh, Rainy Smurf. You can't handle the illusion of truth. <laughs> By the way, he usually names a lot of his stuff. Like, the, the name of his email was Longfire Epiphany Word. <laughs> that was the subject. Uh, so sometimes they're really, really funny. Uh, I like the way that Flounder directs his episode with the snapshots. 
and Garibaldi goes from completely disrespecting the Drazi in previous episodes to knowing their gods and customs. Mr. Garibaldi, I believe in God, and I think you are an idiot. Happy? <laughs> Instead of this whole Garibaldi arc, I would rather just hear Drawl list off the things that give him the screaming willies. <laughs> nice job. This you do that so well. I, I need to make that my ringtone. <laughs> hey, you know what? If anybody out there wants a ringtone uh, done either by Joey or myself, let us know. We'll maybe kind of think about that. Uh, throw that out there. Yeah, sure. A little fun reward for people. I, I, I can make you one right now of <laughs> the Screaming Willies, followed by I'm Peter Nash and I'm running for president. <laughs> <laughs> You better believe that audio clip, man. Uh, he continues, This is a very out-of-the-box episode, and it's slightly interesting to re-watch it and see how the sordid journalist spins everybody's statements. When I was in college at Syracuse, I accidentally talked to a student journalist one day, and I, uh, as I was exiting the bil- uh, building... What are you... I accidentally talked to a journalist, he said... <laughs> I generally try to avoid them. <laughs> <laughs> the previous night, I had considerable to drink. Unaware that I was being quoted, I pontificated on how crappy I felt, and that if I had been the designated driver last night, I would have, uh, I would be having a better day today. I found out the next day that I had actually said that the drunk said that drunk driving is not a bad thing. <laughs> <laughs> For the record, I think it's bad. Journalists are meanies. <laughs> Sci-Fi 7, TV 8. Rock on. Uh, funny. That's uh, really funny. <laughs> okay. Uh, Moneybags finishes off by saying, A good episode, but I didn't watch it. When watching an episode like this, knowing the ending makes me very uncomfortable. I want to. Uh, I keep wanting to scream, Look out! It's a trap! <laughs> TV six, sci-fi six. Joey, uh, your your sci-fi rating? Yeah, uh, four at best. <laughs> I just there's not a whole lot here. Yeah, I wrote down a four as well. I think we really should be giving this a three for science fiction because there's not a lot of science fiction yeah, that happens. I'm other than a little bit of credit for the Garibaldi thing with the you know the Drazi oh, gods. Okay. okay, and then uh, I I also considered. The camera, the flying camera that keeps bumping into the back of your head. I thought that was hilarious. Yeah. I, I was certain they would use that footage of him staring at the camera suspiciously. Yeah. Okay, uh, for television, what do you give it? Uh, for television, I give it a five. But here's the thing. I, I, I've watched this episode many times, and I know, based on what you've said here tonight, that you and I have very much the same interpretation of events. But I want to share with you... <laughs> As we <laughs> spend 20 minutes vehemently <laughs> arguing with each other? <laughs> interpretation of events, not of the definition of the term journalist. <laughs> um, in watching this episode with my wife last night, she said, you know, I really like how at the end, the reporter turned out to be a nice guy. <gasps> no! <laughs> and I said... What? Were you watching the same episode I just watched? And my wife said, well, no, he told Sheridan up front, 
I'm good. This this story's gonna get spun. Oh. It's gonna get corrupted. But I'm gonna try and stick in that one little bit of truth that will help you. And he did. At the end, he got that one little bit of truth out. I said, "What are you talking about?" She said, "Did you not realize that that reporter just told Sheridan what, what happened to his dad? He delivered news to Sheridan about him. your dad is safe. Your farm was your family's farm was burned down, but your dad is safe. Your dad isn't safe. Your dad's dead." <laughs> That's what I heard when I when he said that. It's like, oh, we haven't been able to find him since the accident on the farm where everything burned down. And we haven't seen him. And my wife interprets that as, well, we burned down the farm, but your, your family wasn't there. Your family is out. They're still hiding successfully from the government. So I just thought it was interesting. Maybe that'll turn around and have a happy ending, but uh, that dude's dead. As far as I'm concerned, he's dead. Uh, Ron Howard's dad is dead. Um, For television, I'm going to give this a four only. Uh, I think that this is an episode that is trying to be, you know, making a a social commentary about, um, you know, what happened with, uh, oh crap, I can't remember his name. McCarthy? McCarthy, yeah, the McCarthy era. Um, But I, I think back on episodes of television like The Drumhead that are so much more effectively yeah, I, done I see, yeah, at I portraying agree. that story. I like the story. I think it's a good story to tell because I think that's something we need to remind ourselves about, which is the cost of freedom uh, sometimes isn't, uh, you know, it, it's, it's a tricky sort of, you know, trade-off that you have so to, to get. Edge, yeah. um, so I want that story to be told. I want people to realize that and think about it, tell it. But... This is poorly told. I think there's another element of this that that I want to make sure gets some credit. And it's this idea of teaching people, look, you need to be careful and filter the media that you take in. You can't take the, their word for it all the time. Oh, yeah. Like, like I said, you know, he has talked to many people who watch this episode and said, what? No, I didn't catch that there was stuff in there that wasn't part of the original interview. People really are this dumb, Pete. They they are. Yeah. And he's trying to show that to people, and I think it deserves yeah. a little bit of credit the, for that. The, you cannot believe people just because they have the air of legitimacy about them. Yeah. And we've given our news media's that air. We've basically said, oh, you you are the bastion of safe information because you're not biased. You know. Thankfully, we have you know Fox News, which is fair and balanced. <laughs> To, to be able to help uh, prevent all of the uh, false atrocities that get uh, proliferated out there through the liberal media. You know, I'm going to create a, <laughs> a news channel, and it's going gonna, it's gonna to say, you know, Joey's News Corner. And our, our, our tagline will be something like, the only news source you can actually trust in everything we say. Because clearly, if you say that, it becomes true. <laughs> Uh, yeah, okay, four uh, for me. P5 rating on this is 7.56. Well, that brings us to the end of another episode of the Home Starmy Presents Trek West 5. We hope that you've learned something, had some laughs, and we always invite your comments to our email at trekwest5 at thehomestarmy.com. Or you can tweet us at hashtag trekwest5, or call and leave us a voicemail at 801 801- 788-4913. So until next time, I am Joey. And I am Peter. And thanks for listening. Only sun is good
so good to see you again.